Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the incredible two-headed podcast. Uh, That's right. We're back in your feeds. Maybe, I think this is actually the first regular episode I've done this year. Um, I had like the the (laughs) music episode that that came out in January. Um, Even that hasn't been done. I'm I'm not even going to make excuses for it. It's been a very crazy few months, but here we're getting back into it. And uh, as you can tell, I'm a little bit rusty at it. And so being or feeling a little rusty, feeling a little bit um, uh, need to get back into the groove of things. Uh, I, of course, brought along my old pal, Rick Todd Johnson, uh, to help me out, who is who's always good to chat with. Uh, I feel like once I get past these little stumbling blocks here, the, the stuttering and muttering, um, I think we're going to have a good conversation about a couple of interesting movies i'll say that i won't tip the hand um but anyway let's get into it uh rick how's it going long time no no audibly talk (laughs) uh it's going um okay (laughs) i i think that's pretty much the best that can be said about a a lot of us these days yeah uh, everything in life is kind of in flux right now so it's it's uh yeah but you just kind of get through it so how do I get through it? Watching lots of movies. So, <laughs> which is which is one uh, indulgence I I have not I have not really been partaking lately. I I, I get a couple in a week, um, but yeah, I, I just don't. I'm so exhausted. I, I put a movie on and being that passive, sitting down, I, I just fall asleep immediately. Um, Although I guess big big news in our household, uh, we did take our youngest daughter to see her first movie in a theater, and that was my first movie in a theater since January of 2020. Uh, and my oldest daughter and my partner had not been in a theater since late 2019, so um, it was kind of a a big deal in our house. I mean, it, like we used to do cool. this all the time i used to go to movies several times a week and as an adult not so much but still more often than <laughs> the you know a, a two-year break two and a half year almost is quite a big deal yeah i mean i went a year i went just under a year i think before i stuck back in i can't i think it was just about a year i saw a movie two days before the pandemic hit Oh yeah, I saw King Kong in a theater, the the original, and then um, watched that and The Hunt in a movie theater. I watched two movies that day, 
And then two days later, uh, that's when they shut down everything. So it was like, okay. <laughs> and then uh, I think it was about a year before I saw something. So, uh, but for me, yeah, I had to, I, the first, first chance of a theater opening, I was like, well, I'm going to risk it, you know? So yeah, I, we, we were, but I had, a, I, you know, I had my, I had my, you know, your 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 shot by then. yeah i've been you know shot it up by then yeah we were looking forward to once we got vaccinated being able to go out and then as like as soon as we were you know vaccinated it, there's all the talk about all the variants and variants and all that whatever stuff. and we're just you know it, it we just we were fine without it as much as it pains me to say that as much as I missed it and certainly seeing a movie in theaters, it was like, man, I, it just, I just want to go every day now. But, um, in the pictures that looked like you didn't go to a crowded one though. So that's, no, I had the, I had a, a Monday off. And so we went to go see the bad guys, which had been out for a few weeks. And we went to the first showing at 10 20 in the morning. And we just figured like, eh, it's, probably not going to be very busy um right and uh it wasn't like we saw some people in the theater when we got out going to other showings so it was picking up but there was yeah. literally nobody else came into the theater while we were there um yeah. so yeah i mean the was, same the same exact day you know we went to a movie to, to you know we, we've been going to movies right you know not regularly but a couple of months, you know, and mostly Marvel and any big event type things we wanted to see. But uh, uh, I think we saw Lost City, uh, you know, with Bullock uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, Doctor Strange came out. We decided to not go to the uh, Thursday shows, you know, before before it opened officially. Um, though more screenings were being added Thursday afternoon after people had already bought the evening shows on Thursday. But then we saw them filling up and it was just like, nah, we're just going to wait till Monday. And so same Monday you went to bad guys, we went to Dr. Strange, you know, so you were there, we were at the other you know, theater and, and, uh, um, and we chose like the Dolby theater because it had the most room in it. And we had people sitting like, there were like a couple seats between me and another bunch of, you know, comic book nerds because they were obvious from their behavior because uh, we were all reacting the same ways to certain things. <laughs> um, so I knew they were, but uh, um, it was not too crowded, you know, but we were also in Dolby with the big leather seats and they're wide apart and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, been uh, making it a little bit easier than sitting in a regular movie seat next to right next to other people. So, yeah. And this has got me thinking now, because Amber and I actually are going to quite a few concerts this year. Um, a lot of it is stuff that we've gotten tickets to recently, M several, like three shows coming up this year that we, we got the tickets to like right before, uh, the pandemic hit and they've just been like, you know, uh, pushed back and pushed back. And now yeah. they're finally just saying, we're going to have the shows. And so unless anything happens where, you know, we, we have to go to those, um, a lot of them are outdoor venues. The other ones. We, we go with the N95 masks and we just don't take them off during the show. Um, See, I'm even worried about the out. I know it's like, oh, you're outside. It's better. Yeah, but if you're jammed in with a whole bunch of people just rubbing up against them and stuff at an outdoor concert, like, because that happens. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, that's just as bad. You're both breathing on each other. So, you know, it's kind like, of. It's, well, the venues we're talking about, I don't know if you've been to them, but the Hollywood Bowl and the Greek. Hollywood um, Bowl's pretty tight seating, though. I mean, are they putting spaces between seats? or? Oh, they... I don't know about that. But the, the, the shows that we've gone at both of those places, we kind of get the the back seats like we don't sit up close or even in the middle and it's pretty empty right. back there it, it, it yeah, kind of clears we out we usually end up in the back too but it's yeah it's always been crowded when we gone but we went to like spam a lot we went to things like that you know so. yeah well we'll see how this is i mean everybody everybody wants to go out now everything's yeah. opening up so yeah but yeah except now the hospitals are getting filled up again so <laughs> the rates are going up again so yeah yeah um, i know but like i said we're like n95 and we uh, but at a certain point you just kind of like yeah you just kind of figure out where you're gonna you know take your risk and i mean we've been going to the zoo the whole time so you know yeah I we mean, started early last year we've we, we were going to san diego zoo and and we just kind of like look at and, and we look and see where people are crowded together and we just don't get near them, you know, and then we just kind of, yeah. We do that too. We go to the zoo. We've done that pretty regularly over the last, we, we, we gave it up for about a year. Um, uh, but then we, we've started going to that again every once in a while. And of course we, we've been going to the aquarium down in uh, the aquarium of the Pacifics. Yeah. And we've done that twice. And Really, it's it, the second time we went. It was just because our youngest wanted to pet the manta rays again and the sharks. Yeah, well, not, why not? Not manta rays, but the bat rays. Yeah, or yeah, bat, but that that's all we did. Uh, like, so we were there for maybe an hour and a half, and, and that was it. And you know, we'll go back and see some of the other stuff again. But we got the annual pass, so the membership, so we can just makes it stress free to just go there and not not have to worry about doing everything yeah i just find i, I just find the inside of the aquarium because it's a, it's a relatively small aquarium inside and so i just find it a little too crowded in there so we just haven't gone to it since it reopened so even though yeah. i want to go you know i mean you know i want to do the same thing i want to go pet pet rays and and look at sharks and stuff but it's like uh just uh yeah i'm just not ready for that yet so when we went the first time uh, they were, and, and when the day we got the, our, our membership, um, they were still requiring masks. And now I think they're just encouraging masks. Uh, so the first time we went, it was pretty, like, we felt comfortable enough because everybody was wearing a mask as well. Yeah. Um, but, uh, to bring this back around to movies before we get into our discussion, um, it, this experience did have me thinking like, man, if I have like a weekday off, why, I mean, I, I would feel comfortable going and sitting in a matinee uh, or like I have friends who never, well, I mean, they stopped obviously when theaters were closed, but you know, the cinematic void is still going on and there's yeah. all these shows at the Cinematheque and um, that look amazing and <laughs> that look like a ton of fun and my friends are all going and I, I would like to go to that too. Uh, it does have me thinking about, you know, maybe after my next booster, um, which will be coming up here, I think, this month. I should be getting my second booster this week or not this week, this month, I think. Anyway, uh, so yeah. movies, <laughs> let's get into it. Yeah. Um, 
we're here talking about i didn't come up with a, a clever name maybe you can help me this month. well you're doing you're doing we're doing christopher lee movies yes but i did not like last month last year the month of may was vincent price's month and it was the master of mayness or maester of say, menace. Just take it from tenacious d and say talking fucking lee okay <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this month, we're talking about a couple of movies that he has pretty small parts in, one bigger than the other, one more pivotal, I would say, than the other. Um, but we're, we're talking about a couple of comedies, which he's not always thought of or known for. But um, your idea, we're going to be talking Satirica Lee today, correct? I like that. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Hey, well, no, I am going to show you the text record. You sent it to me, said satirically. Did I? Yes. I come up with stuff all the time that people say, hey, remember when you said that? And I go, I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, so. I could edit it out and take credit for it, but I, I don't want you. I want you to do whatever you want. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I just I pun constantly. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, it's just part of the way I speak. It's like the way people speak a regular language. I just pun constantly. So it's just like. I forget when I've come up with something. I just go, hey, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah, you said it. Oh, okay, yeah, it's, then it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going um, so. to be discussing uh, two films. We're going to be discussing The Magic Christian from 1969, and then after that, we're going to be discussing Serial from 1980, correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's uh, take a quick break listen to the trailer for the magic christian and we'll be back in just a minute to discuss it the world's richest man and the world's poorest boy are getting it ready now and everybody everywhere will be a little worse off for it well then gunman grand father and son team since the Frankensteins. I have it on the best of authority that Ringo Starr is the magic Christian. Can't we settle our differences amicably? No, son, no. Some bird told me that Peter Sellers is the magic Christian. You needn't eat the plastic. I just wanted to see if you had your price. Through the engine room, if memory serves. I say, Dad, shouldn't we tell them the real identity of the magic Christian? Heaven only knows, son. Heaven only I actually um, did not find a lot of information about this movie online. I figured there would be just like a ton of information and, you know, interviews or uh, uh, behind the scenes, like stories and like the Wikipedia page is ridiculously uh, slim for the, the, the sort of, you know, noteworthiness I think this movie holds, even if it's not like incredibly well remembered. Um, 
But yeah, okay, well, here, we, we're back, okay? We're talking about The Magic Christian from 1969, in which the world's richest man, played by Peter Sellers, and his adopted hobo son, set out to test the limits of human vanity and greed through a series of money games. I'm reading that off of IMDb. Um, I'll, I'll let you talk in just a minute, but I just want to like go through my experience watching this. I had never seen this movie before. Um, I, I was aware of it. I was dimly aware that it its um, its reputation was not the greatest, and so I, I kind of just thought, "Oh, it's a flop." It, it's you know, it, it, it. I'm not. Please don't interrupt because I know you're going to want to <laughs> when I say what I'm about to um, say. Say um, what you want to say. I am not the biggest Peter Sellers fan. Uh, I'm holding back. I'm holding back. Yeah, you can. I'll let you. I'll let you unload in a minute. <laughs> um. And I'll, I'll say after having seen this, and there are things I like him in, maybe I need to see more Peter Sellers. I mean, definitely I should see more Peter Sellers. Um, anyway, I didn't really know what the plot of this was either. Um, I assumed going into it, because I, I just read the brief description, I think probably on Amazon where I rented it. I, I thought it was going to be a different kind of satire. I thought that uh, Peter Sellers um, as Sir Guy Grand, uh, I thought Peter Sellers was going to be the stuffy elite, like, like upper crust British person who, whose life is over, like kind of overrun and overturned by this, uh, homeless person that he becomes entwined with. Right. I thought that the was what, I, yeah, I thought the plot would, that was going to be the plot. I thought I knew what this movie was going to be. And so, I watched it twice and I would say the first time was a little disorienting because it took me a while to kind of figure out what was, what, what the game was, right? I, which, uh, which way, which side was up. Yeah. So. Uh, but, um, well, before I go anymore, before I, I kind of get into what I thought of the movie, uh, why did you pick this? What, like, I'm assuming you have a, a more of a history with it than I do. Well, I've seen it several times since I was a teenager um, this was another movie that was kind of introduced to me on the sly by the guys who owned the video, owned video city, which was the video store that, that had several locations in Anchorage, Alaska. And, uh, I was a denizen of the one out in, out in, uh, um, you know, I'm starting to forget the streets in Anchorage, but off the old Seward highway, uh, in South Anchorage. And that eventually became the biggest video city because they, expanded over into this abandoned auction house this big red building uh but when i used to go there it was a tiny little you know like 20 foot across by it, it maybe not even 20 feet uh 20 feet by like maybe 40 uh foot shack <laughs> attached to the auction house and just movies just jammed in there and the owners would uh um because they found out when I was like 16, 17, when I started going to this place um, and, and our family had a membership there, um, they found out that I was a fan of a certain type of, you know, British comedy and, and just comedy in general and weird films. I liked weird films and I liked horror movies too. So they kind of found out that I would, I kind of fell into their kind of zone of, Hey, you've got to see this and it's not on the shelves, but we're going to loan you our copy of this. And so they loaned me all sorts of things that were not, not available for rent 
you know, they started like trusting me. And so they, you know, and I would, you know, so I got to see lots of things that were not on video, like evil Roy Slade with, with uh, John Aston and uh, Quaxer fortune as a cousin in the Bronx, which was not on video officially yet with uh, Gene Wilder and uh, um, just uh, some John Waters stuff that was not available yet. So, I mean, they had all these like kind of black market tapes that they were just like, Hey, you know, take it home, make a copy, you know, <laughs> you know, if you want, you know, just, so it, it was pretty cool. And uh, one of them was the Magic Christian was not on a video yet, at least at that store. And maybe it was elsewhere, but they had a copy and, they, and it was just a black tape, you know. And they said, oh, you, oh, you like the Beatles. You got to see this movie. You know, it's crazy. You know, you like Peter Sellers. You got to see this movie. And so uh, um, so I saw the Magic Christian. And I have to say, honestly, when I first watched it, I was like delighted because it was so <laughs> freaking weird so strange and it fell right into my sensibilities but at the same time i could watch it and go this isn't a very good movie <laughs> you know it's like it was very disjointed and strange and it didn't really make sense to me when i watched it um it made more sense to me on rewatches um eventually i did own it uh for a while on video i had it on vhs uh but i no longer have a copy um uh, well, I mean, I did, you know, to review it for this, I did end up purchasing it on Apple TV, you know, on, on the on the app. But uh, so now I have a copy, but I don't own a physical copy of it. And um, it's just an utterly, utterly strange movie. It is. But with, a, with a lot of a lot of kind of kind of tendrils that kind of connect to everything I like in, you know, 60s and 70s, you know, culture and stuff. So. Yeah, I was gonna say like all of the the people that show up in here, um, oh, in like small yeah. roles. Like, I mean, Spike Milligan is in there. John Cleese and Graham Chapman, who wrote an earlier version of this script, um, and are credited right. with additional material. Uh, and and some of the material they wrote for it uh, that did not get used ended up on Monty Python's Flying Circus when they started that the year the year after. And um, which, a couple of good a, a couple uh in particular the scout the, a sketch that's on the show called the mouse problem was originally written for this um uh for this movie about a um gentleman's clubs where um uh, men would dress as mice and act like mice you know and you know there's like a black market cheese you know <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> and and uh and they had and john cleese is interviewed on television and talking about you know you know, you know, well, what, what do they give you? And he goes, Oh, some, some, some cheese. Yeah. It's like, and it's like, it's like, Oh, the surreptitious kind of little cult mouse cult that's overtaking Britain, you know? So, uh, but it was written for this movie. So the, the but first wa time watching it, watching it, you can tell it didn't actually fit this movie. So, you know, he, yeah, well, you, you mentioned that, but the first time I watched this, part of the reason I, I kind of, um, struggled with it and I, I i enjoyed it on both of my watches but the 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 most i struggled with in the first time is kind of how as you say disjointed um mm -hmm. the movie is how kind of picaresque it is it's just like it, it makes more sense sometimes sometimes as a a sketch film like a like a monty python meaning of life where it's just like a uh, like funny idea then we're done with it we're going to go to the next funny idea um which I wasn't expecting when I first saw it. 
And when I first saw it, like yeah, I, I already told you what I thought the plot was going to be. Um, my first clue <laughs> that this movie was not going to be what I thought was when Sir Guy Grand meets Youngman Grand and asks if he can feed the pigeons or the, the, the ducks with him. And he pulls out like a, a money clip with bread in it. Yeah, he pulls out a wallet or something like that. And he's got like a piece of bread in it. Yeah. And then they go. And then I was like, oh, this. So so there's something more going on with Peter Sellers. But I still wasn't quite aware. And then, of course, by the time we get to the Hamlet scene, I'm like, oh, this movie is a sketch comedy world. It is a, a cartoon in a way. Um Except there's a reason for all the weird behavior you're seeing in the film. There is, which I, I mean, maybe which I'm... You don't get to until about halfway through it, you start realizing what's what the game is. Yeah, which I, I, I will say I didn't quite ever pick up on, on. I mean, I knew what the game was, but I also thought, like, some things were just random. <laughs> I was like, oh, this whole world is is weird. And then it was the second time. So what, like basically everything that's crazy going on in this movie is kind of bored Peter Sellers paying for people to just kind of do crazy things. Like uh, it's, it's not, well, it's not that he's, it's not that he's bored. It's he wants, he, he has this mission in life to prove that people will do anything for money that there's no limit to what people will do if you just flash some cash in front of them. And so he makes the situations increasingly ridiculous just to see what people will, you know, to see how far you can push a, a, a traffic warden, you know, to not give you that ticket and how much you can pay or uh, how much it costs to, to uh, basically bribe the entire Cambridge rowing team to, th to basically uh, throw, uh, throw a race against Oxford, you know, so uh, who have a proud tradition of rowing, you know, and it's like, what, what does it take? You know? So, um, so basically it's him in a series of bribes, you know, to see what people will do. So he bribes an entire restaurant, you know, so they, they, they serve him this exceedingly ridiculous and expensive dish of caviar and he just smears it all over his face and then they hose him down basically, you know, so in front of the rest of the restaurant, you know, disgusting everybody. So, and, and, it, and ultimately it pays off in a really, a scene I wish was more disgusting, but probably given the limits of cinema at the time, they probably couldn't show it to be more disgusting than it is. We'll talk about that later, but there's, it, it's, yeah, it's just, but you don't really know that he's doing all of this until you see the scene where he's trying to, when he talks to the, the captain of the rowing team and he shows him this, the brief case of money and that's kind of the point where you go okay you know he says i have to go talk to this guy and then you realize oh he's been doing this all along all this weird stuff is because he's like talk people into playing along with his game yeah like i i didn't realize until the second time i watched it that that boxing match that they watch where the two boxers just start to make out uh i didn't right. realize he had paid them to do that <laughs> i was that like that that's yeah. what i was thinking this entire time is just that, never, like, he doesn't even go to the match they just they're he, he and the family are just watching it on television and he he says things like oh you know he he says things to throw people off of the fact that he's you know bought the event you know and, and i think it, it looks like he's interested i think at one point he gets a note right like he gets a note from the yeah 
the uh police and like that's the clue is just like so so and so ready for tomorrow and then i was like oh that that must have been like or or what maybe that was the i couldn't i'm maybe i'm mixing up the chronology that might have been for the uh pheasant hunting scene that right uh but you chronology like, doesn't really matter i mean it, no you know, it's I'm just saying that, that that him getting there's that no note, real plot line to it, you know. So I, I I just the second time I watched it, him getting that note was me realizing like, oh, that's him getting note getting verification that what he has paid for is, is going on. to happen. Yeah. So uh, before we get more into the story of the movie, I think maybe we should talk about the Beatles connection here. Okay. Because I mean, Ringo Starr's the star you know the co-star of the movie um but there is there's more than that to it um including the music in the in the film yes yeah paul mccartney uh wrote well come and get it is the basically the theme of the movie it was a song originally that he wrote for the the beatles actually but um but um, they ended up using it in the movie, and he actually produced or co-produced the first the the album by the band Bandfinger Badfinger, who was uh, signed to Apple Records. So their the Badfinger used to be called the Ivies, but they renamed they wanted like an edgier name, right? And so they called themselves Badfinger. And their second album is actually called Magic Christian Music, even though it's not a soundtrack. It's called Magic Christian Music because three of the songs in the movie are on that album. And then there's another song on the album, uh, the, uh, the song Something in the Air, which is a pretty famous classic rock song by Thunderclap Newman, who is also uh, an Apple artist, uh, that, a band with Apple. And um, that song was produced by Pete Townsend with the, of The Who. And then the guy who wrote the song "Something in the Air," he is the only guy to sing lead vocals on a song by the Who, on a Who album, other than the members of the Who. And uh, he sang. Uh, his name's John Keane, and he sang uh, the song "Armenia City in the Sky" on the Who Sell Out album, which is my my favorite Who album. And uh, the opening track to that album is like the like the first time I heard, it, I was like. That doesn't sound like Roger Daltrey. Daltrey sings on the song, but I'm like, that doesn't sound like Roger Daltrey. And I, you know, found out, you know, by reading the the album, you know, notes and stuff. I go, oh, John Keane, who's he? You know, I had no idea, and I had no idea he was the guy who wrote and sings something in the air, which I heard on classic rock radio like every week, several times. So, uh, but that song is in this movie also. So, you not only have a more Beatles connection in in this movie, but you also have the Who slightly connected to it, also with Pete Townsend. Um, so it, there's, you know, it's, it's, all these guys are friends, you know, they all, you know, recorded together and all that stuff. But, um, and then the other interesting thing is with the Beatles connection here, you also have Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan in this movie who were with the goon show. And then you've got the Beatles. And then on the other side of that, you've got Graham Chapman and John Cleese with Monty Python. So you have this connection here between the three in big factors in my life, all three of them, the Goon Show, the Beatles, 
and and Monty Python's Flying Circus. And it's just very cool that this movie kind of lines them all up. And then later we'll see Christopher Lee come into the picture and that kind of aligns another mm -hmm. influence from the 60s for me, which is Hammer Films and stuff. So it's very cool that all of this is just, you know, jammed into this one movie. And uh, um, so, yeah, when I first saw it, I was like, this is amazing. And even though I was like like 16, maybe 17 at the time when I saw it, um, these were all influences in my life. So <laughs> already at that point, that's, that's the stuff that I was into. And so, uh, yeah, this movie is just full, just chock full of uh, really cool connections like that, including all the cameos that are in the film from other actors and, and you know, people. Uh, it's 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 quite an amazing film just to watch for it's it's it just for what's stuffed into the film. I mean, it's stuffed to the gills with just weird stuff and cameos and weird occurrences. So, I mean, it's even if you don't end up liking the movie, it's just rich in just kind of strange ephemera, you know. So, yeah. Well, I I don't know how true it is, but I did read that it was written originally with John Lennon in mind. Um, yeah, that's but true. He's obviously he's not in the movie, but there is a Lennon and uh, Yoko Ono lookalike uh, boarding the Magic Christian towards the end of the movie. Yes. Which that title that that that's another like little non-clue that made me think this movie was going to be one thing that it wasn't, because the Magic Christian I assumed was going to be like maybe that was. That would maybe that was Ringo Starr. Maybe he's a magical, and I don't mean magic. I just mean kind of like he comes in and through his craziness right. solves every problem. Well, the magic Christian is obviously Jesus, but you know, it's like yeah, yeah. But the, it's the yeah. name of a, a a cruise ship, which is a weird name movie, for a yeah. cruise ship. But then it is that it is the location that this movie spends the longest amount of time in. I, but even then, that's still only about twenty minutes of the movie. It's like 15 minutes. Yeah, it's not even 20 minutes. It's it's it, it doesn't show up. I mean, you hear about it a little bit near the, in the last half hour, but I, I think like there's 22 minutes left in the film, and they finally get onto the boat. Yeah, you know, and then they finally get onto the Magic Christian, but you don't hear about it until like an hour into the film. And then once they're off of the Magic Christian, there's still another like 10 minutes, maybe less, in the movie. Yeah, yeah. There's so still like there's still like more things that need to be done. Yeah. Um, it is when the movie just like gets all out crazy. Uh, but I mean, we're, maybe we're jumping ahead of ourselves or maybe I'm jumping ahead. I, I was curious, like I said, I couldn't find a whole lot online about this movie. Um, I like to read more than just Wikipedia or IMDB, but uh, th like there just wasn't a lot other than, you know, reviews. Um, yeah. I did, I did read, I, I was curious the entire time I was watching it, both times, like, what did Peter Sellers think of Ringo Starr? Because I know he can be kind of a prickly guy. And Ringo Starr uh, is very much a, like, you know, peace and love, peace and love. Um, from what I understand, they were buddies, like, of the drinking, you know, drinking buddies kind of thing. Um, but a lot of stuff, from what I've read and heard, is that, so Peter Sellers was an, an, an intensely jealous person about other people getting the spotlight. And so the reason, so there's the, the scene in the film with um, um, John Cleese 
as the guy who runs the auction house. And um, Sellers had that scene cut to a certain extent because he felt John Cleese was going to steal the movie from him, that he was being funnier. And so he had some stuff like kind of recut and stuff so that, you know, it's still funny, but it's like, uh, apparently John Cleese was really, really like just killing it. And the same thing with Ringo Starr is um, there were things that originally Ringo Starr was supposed to be doing in the movie and Peter Sellers decided that he's going to do them instead. Um, just because he wanted more of the spotlight. So he's, he, he's a guy who was constantly like, I mean, and you could tell from the movies where he plays like six or seven characters, obviously he's a guy who likes being in the spotlight. And, uh, and so, yeah, anytime anybody started showing like, Oh, you know, what, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of like steal this scene from you. It's like, Nope. I got final say on this. And so he would like, and he'd done it in other movies too, where, you know, he, you know, he'd kind of put his foot down and say, no, we're, I'm going to do that line instead. So, which is interesting because in the original novel, I've not read the novel. I've read other Terry Southern books. Uh, and, uh, oh, we should probably mention Terry Southern uh, who co-wrote the screenplay with the director, Joseph McGrath. Um, and then, and of course, Sellers and Cleese and Chapman wrote additional material for it. But Terry Southern wrote the original book that this is based on. And uh, Southern co-wrote Dr. Strangelove. And um, and he also wrote a novel that I read a couple of times when I was younger called Candy, which is also made into a movie in 1970. Um, and he's a, a crazy writer. A lot of all of his movies are all of his books are very surrealistic exercises, very strange. They make a, make fun of Hollywood and they make fun of kind of more mores of the time and trends and um, and he's uh, and all all of them very satirical very black comedy kind of kind of exercises really making fun of society and um, um, the original novel the character of Sir Guy Grand he has no son in the novel like all the stuff all of his exploits are done by him. And so to have Ringo in the movie, they had to take a lot of Sir Guy Grand's stuff and give it to Youngman Grand. So basically that role was split into two roles so that Ringo Starr could be in the movie. And then Sellers would, would steal lines back from the character. That, so it's kind of interesting, you know, how they did that, you know. Yeah, I, I think maybe that's something I don't like about or that, that keeps me away from like saying I really like Peter Sellers is just like I, I hear all the stories about him i find him a little bit overpowering at times like he can uh he can kind of draw focus in a way that i i don't appreciate um I, i'm trying to think of like i obviously i've seen the pink panther movies um right I'm trying well, to think what else so i was going to tell you the the, the big thing here is the difference between the first Pink Panther movie and the second Pink Panther movie, A Shot in the Dark, which were both released in the same year in 1964, right? Like like 11 months apart or 10 months apart or something like that. Pink Panther, when you watch it, the I mean, we all know Inspector Clouseau. Everybody knows you know the character now. In that very first movie, the Pink Panther, he is a supporting character. 
he is not the star of the film. David Niven is the star of the film as, as the gentleman thief. He is the actual star of that film. He has top billing in it. Peter Sellers is a supporting character. He became the breakout star of that film. But when you watch the movie, there are long gaps where, where he doesn't show up and then he shows up and he acts crazy. And of course he completely steals the movie from, from, from Niven, even though Niven's very funny in the movie, but then just a few months later, because the Pink Panther is such a big hit, the star of the second movie is they, 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 oh, they, we've got something in Clouseau. We got to do another movie with Clouseau. And that was shot in the dark. And that's all Peter Sellers. And, but I love the Pink Panther. I mean, the Pink Panther is a very good, very fun movie, but I really love a shot in the dark because. Yeah, no, shot in the dark is great. That giant dose of, of sellers in that movie is just so great and the thing is when sellers is on uh when you watch him in uh, uh the mouse that roared fantastic movie um if you watch him in anything that he's that he's in over the years it's just he's uh i mean uh, the lady killers all that stuff i mean he's just amazing you know he he has a very wide breadth of, of roles all, all the way up to his last role in being there um but the problem with sellers is that also led to bad judgment on his part for some of his, like the Finnish plot of Fu Manchu and all that stuff. Um, he just led to some poor choices as far as, you know, characters. A lot of his roles were also at the expense of other nationalities and races, you know, so he, you know, he had a tendency to put on an Indian voice and play kind of Indian, like kind of like Mike Myers did with the love guru. Um, a very similar situation where it's just like, eh, maybe that wasn't the best choice, but the party is still a very funny movie. It's just, you have to buy that he's like this kind of half Indian guy in the, in the film, well, um, but he's 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 a fantastic and a fascinating actor to watch, and I mean from even in the smallest part, and I, I really hope that at some point you do a deep dive into Sellers and just start as early in his career as you can, and just go through because he is a stunning actor. And have you seen Being There? Yes, I, I've seen that. Okay. Um, I, I, I like I like being there. I'm gonna say like to bring it back to this movie though. Um, this is maybe the most I've like liked Peter Sellers. I mean, maybe not the best movie or the movie I've liked his per like. I don't know. There's just something very appealing about how he plays Guy Grand. That even though he's like manipulative, he's um, he's super nice. Yeah, <laughs> he's really he's, nice. Yeah. He, he's he's really nice. He's really fun and pleasant. Uh, there's just something about like the I think it's the hair and the facial hair as well, and it's just mannerisms are yeah. are very appealing. Like you kind of like want to like him. You understand to an extent why everybody kind of stays okay with the all of the crap he's pulling. Uh, right. beyond just money <laughs> like because these people around him so like like i said i didn't catch on the first time that he had been like messing with people the entire time the second time around when um what's the cousin's name i think or the other woman is it ginger the woman that comes in in the train car and she's talking about the doctor that he sent her to about Agnes? how like she he dropped an entire raw egg in her mouth and wrapped her head in bacon. 
that's right yeah and she's got this monologue while he's doing this thing with the hot dog vendor that you you don't catch all of it you just he keeps leaving and coming back and it's it's getting crazier and crazier and the second time watching it i caught the line where she's like the doctor you sent me to i think he's a little weird but she puts up with all of that because guy grand has just such uh like is apparently the richest man in the world he is just yeah. so wealthy that that people will put up with yeah, all of he the can't be touched. yeah, all of the craziness he brings with him, and all of the awful things he sometimes does to them. Even though it it does also seem like the thing is, he's not doing it in a mean way. He's just trying to prove his point. He's just yeah. trying to prove his point about society, and that's the whole thing. He's just he's just like, look, you guys are awful, and I'm going to prove it. You know, <laughs> and he's but he's not mean about it. He's just like well, I I will say the one thing he that, does like shock people. Yeah, the one thing that that I I get where this movie's coming from, so I'm not really bristling at it. But the thing that like catches my like I, I, that I snag on is, for the most part, he is doing this to other awful rich people, like the pheasant hunt thing, where he like they're all yes. talking about how sporting it is and how 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 they're gonna be like they're just like walking through the woods and firing at pheasant and they're talking about fair play and sportsmanship. And it's like, right. there's no fair play in this. And he brings out an anti-aircraft, like uh, he's missiles. got a whole, he's got a whole like troop. He's got a whole regiment behind him yeah, with like anti-aircraft guns. And you know, it's like, <laughs> so he's, he's kind of showing up these, like the, the awfulness of say to use modern phraseology, the one percenters right the, right which he is like one of the one percenters yes but the he wants to bring that, his own class down on a, the a thing that I, I snag on and, and he I will, doesn't he doesn't he, i i would say what he's battling is hip, hip, um i'm sorry uh, uh starting to stutter there uh hypocrisy he's trying that's what he's battling in this film that's the main thing is he it's the hypocrisy of everybody not just the upper class everybody and so yeah. I, I Money gonna, levels everything. I was going to say that the thing I snag on is that when he's proving his point that money is everything by making that traffic warden eat the ticket that he had written. Played or, by Spike Miller. Yeah. Okay. And uh, at the end, when it's basically just city workers coming and he's like, they're, and submerging themselves in urine and animal excrement and blood to get like basically random floating tenors. Right. That is like, that isn't as fun <laughs> as watching him do this to other rich people when it's these people who are like, you you can, you can imagine. Well, those, like, guys, those guys might be rich people. Those guys might be stockbrokers. Those guys might be, you know, we don't know who they are really. No, just... but it looked like, it, like they were just basically people that were working nearby that was not a lot not, but the, all those most of those guys are wearing like savile row suits and they're wearing, uh, they have okay i was and, just thinking i saw some uniforms in there was, and they that, probably were i think there probably were but i mean there was a, a, a but a lot of the guys had suits on and bowler cat the bowler hats and i i took that to mean that they were like pretty well-off guys you know okay but like that traffic warden spike milligan in 1969 to get 10 pounds to eat some paper like I mean, ten pounds you is got more not than ten pounds. What's that? You got more than ten pounds. I thought he got more than ten pounds. I thought it was like I thought it was a lot more. Oh, I didn't. Oh, he gave him a stack, didn't he? I was thinking like he's like five hundred pounds. Yeah, it was like huge. 
like would have been okay. a tremendous amount in those days. Every every yeah, it would have been. Even ten would have been pretty like decent. Um, ten would have been decent, but it was more than that. It was a stack of money. I'm just thinking because every time you see him have a bill, it's a ten. But that that yeah. that's right. He had a stack for him. That like giving him a stack. That that seems like that that's the moment where it gets closest to being to feeling cruel instead of just like uh not playful or trying to prove a point like that well it was playful um i would i would say not necessarily cruel because the warden is i mean he's kind of puffed up about his job though you know and I mean, I would give that guy a hard time myself if I were in that situation. Yeah, I would. I would mock the guy about. Oh, it's not there. It, you said it's a loading zone, but they're clearly unloading. You know, I would have mocked the the warden the same way. You know, it's just like I would have. I would have disputed it. Just I didn't have. Wouldn't have the money to pay him off. Nor would I even try to pay him off. But you know, um, but you know, it's like, yeah, it, yeah. It, you could say that that scene itself, and there's probably a couple of scenes where you could say it's kind of mean. But at the same time, I think it's less meanness in this film than cynicism. And that's the main thing that the, the thing you get is it's a very cynical movie. I mean, you know, to, to, to point out the hypocrisy of everybody at the core of it is the cynicism that kind of not laugh at it as much as you might, you know, because it's like, well, OK, maybe, yeah, we get your point. Maybe it's a little heavy handed, you know, especially with the. <laughs> Are you, you saying know. this movie is not subtle? Oh, it's not subtle. Yeah, no, no, no. It's not subtle whatsoever, especially when you get to that final scene. Um, but uh, but I, I would say meanness maybe in a couple scenes, but I, I don't think it's mean most of the time. No, I, I'll agree with that. I'm just saying I, I like, I couldn't, it, it's not that I couldn't overlook it. It's just something that snagged in my head. But yeah. you're right that the overall sense of the movie is not, cruelty uh right that, and that even it, there it, where they're where they're picking on the warden what they're really fighting there are these absurd rules that kind of like clog up society you know where there's just too many laws too many rules and you know so maybe that's maybe that's you know the purpose of that scene that that maybe i don't see it as being mean at so much as just kind of interfering with interfering with society's ridiculousness you know yeah. well this movie does pick a lot of targets as well. And there's like almost a throwaway, like there's a throw, almost a throwaway line where just before they go to the restaurant, young men and guy are playing this weird war game where they're destroying buildings in this large, like uh, circular um, map. And, and they have like a, a, a gun on a swivel that they're like, pushing around the outside and they're, they're trading places and uh, they, it's like having some uh, chatter at the time, uh, calling out orders and everything and blowing up actual model buildings on this table where, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. where Ringo says, can't we just have peace or can't we just give peace a chance? And, uh, <laughs> and then Peter Sellers says, not while a single chapel... No, son, standing. not while there's a cathedral standing. Oh, yeah, not while there's a cathedral standing, and he fires and blows up a model cathedral, and you realize that's what he's been doing. Like, all the buildings are churches that they're shooting at. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's funny, but also, like, I wonder, 
if, if that's the best they could get past censors at the time, it feels like religion might have been a, a bigger target. Because um, of all of the different types of people and types of uh, um, upper class right. people that he, like, they, he doesn't really focus on religion much, but that seems like such Not a, a pointed... Lot, yeah. That, that was hard like, to do. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's such a pointed line and uh, image to go with it. Um, that and well, I, were... I, I remember a couple years later. Well, not, I mean, I wasn't you know watching the show a couple years later, but I didn't. I didn't see it until I was a teenager in the late seventies. But um, on Monty Python's Flying Circus, just a couple years later, created a couple years later, um, and there was a lot of mocking of religion on that show, and they got in some trouble <laughs> with the church oh, off yeah. and on, you know. Um, with some of the stuff that they would say and do, but they, you know, just, you know, you know, having, having, you know, various members of the church, you know, in drag or, or just, you know, saying ridiculous things that were out of, you know, out of, uh, out of, uh, uh, apart from what a, a churchman would normally say, you know, and, and like every episode, there's usually a reference to religion somewhere or other. And, you know, they got in some trouble with that, but they still did it, you know, it's just, but so, I mean, I think maybe society in Britain wasn't ready for that many <laughs> digs at religion at that point in time. I don't know. There were certainly are, there are certainly some out there, but yeah, this movie could have done a lot more in my book uh, that, you know, with, with the religious aspect. Oh, but they, maybe that wasn't really their intent. Maybe they did exactly what they wanted. It, it just, uh, I don't know. It was really, that, it was really, I, I enjoyed that moment. It was fun. Quite literally, that was one of two lines that I wrote down from the film in my notes was the no son now well. Because that's the line that makes me laugh the most in the movie. And that's just because I'm an irreligious sort, but uh, um, old core uh, atheist that I am. So um, not that I want to see churches burnt. I, I think feel people have the right to their churches. It's just, you know, I find it a funny line. So yeah. Wait, wait what's the other line that you wrote? Um, it's during the shooting scene uh, with the with the pheasant, and Ringo just and again it's like a throwaway line, but uh, um, it's it's right. But it's uh, Ringo just says, "Oh, the old values are crumbling." <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, I just thought of another another moment of uh, mentioning religion, and this is it's almost neutral what they're saying, where uh, Ringo brings up the idea of uh, they, they start riffing on um, or he says, do words corrupt? Yeah. And, and Peter <laughs> Sellers looks over and says his... nipple. And she's like, Shh. And he's like, well, there's no immediate physical re reaction. Uh, yeah, but it, there's, it no them, no, there's no immediate physical change. It, it starts them talking about or Ringo and they, he, he starts riffing about uh what is basically Mad Libs pornography so that people... That's what I was thinking, actually, re-watching it. I was kind of going, oh, so, except, you know, they didn't really invent Mad Libs in this movie because Mad Libs had... I actually looked it up. Mad Libs had been around since, like, 1953. Oh, okay. So, uh, so they they essentially were just creating Mad Libs, you know, but... Yeah, but he was, he was saying, like, just pornography with all the dirty words taken out so that people could yep. write their own. And then uh, Peter Seller says, but why stop with pornography? Why not the Bible or, or whatever. That's not his exact line. Um, right. That's, that, that's a little, I, I, I guess that that's, that's a little neutral, but that is still uh, a little bit of a barb or not, maybe not a barb. I, I would religion. love to see a Mad Libs version of the Bible. Huh. I'm sure. Matter that of fact, 
I might, yeah, if it doesn't exist, I might publish it. So. Well, let me, let me do some quick Googling. Send uh, your letters to Aaron. <laughs> well, yeah, here, Noah's Ark, a Mad Lib. There's a bunch of them. <laughs> oh, very, yeah. Anyway. Uh, oh, well, these are on Pinterest. I don't know if people are creating them on their own. Yeah, it could be just like mock-ups or something. So I, I don't know. I don't know if they exist or not. So it'd be interesting. Well, um, do you have anything else specifically or not even, or just generally you want to talk about, about the movie? So, um, yeah. So, well, there's, we haven't even gotten to Christopher Lee. So, um, oh yeah. Well, that's the entire reason. We're but, here. but before we get to that, I, I just want to, there's a, there's a section in the, in, there's a, there's a section in the movie that has an animated sequence in it. Oh yeah. About, about the, as they say in the movie, the Zeus car or Zeus car, which is the Zeus car. We would say Zeus, but they said Zeus. I, maybe it's pronounced that way in Britain. I don't know. Um, but it's about a, a, this giant ass car <laughs> that you could have like an entire squadron of like cheerleaders in the back of it. You know, it's like huge. Um, and and, and it, like it, it goes down over. It, it's like an oversized, like almost like a the Titanic of cars, basically going down streets and just mowing over other cars. And um, that sequence is created by Richard Williams Studios. Um, Richard Williams is the animator responsible for Roger Rabbit. Oh, okay. And later the thief and the cobbler and all that stuff. But um, he uh, was a British animator and um, his studio did lots of bits of animation in like 60s and 70s movies, including the original animation of for the Pink Panther films. So uh, in the original movies um not in the theatrical cartoons that's done by uh depady and freeling but in the um in the movies any opening sequence with the pink panther or the inspector was done by uh, uh richard williams studios so um yeah so he, he's like another peter sellers connection actually i guess in a way um but yeah and, and, and like i didn't even have to look up that it was him because in the movie when they play the the film of the, the the ad with the car in the film in the boardroom where they're watching it, um, it actually says on the screen Richard Williams Studio. <laughs> so no, it has a credit in the middle of the film. I <laughs> so, was going to ask you who did the animation because I just had a feeling that you would know who it was. We have eight minutes left on this meeting. <laughs> okay, let's so. get to Peter Sellers and Rachel Welch and Yul Brenner. <laughs> so. uh, Christopher Lee. Oh gosh, Yul Brenner. How can I not like? I knew and Lawrence Harvey in the and, and Lawrence Harvey in the uh, Shakespeare scene. Man, I that movies. Shakespeare scene is great. But I oh, knew... he's fantastic. And I had just watched two movies with Lawrence Harvey in the last like month, and uh, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot Lawrence Harvey was in this. Another I... drinking buddy of Peter Sellers, by the way. So I knew that 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 Yule Brenner scene because he he's a uh, performing in drag. Um, I knew that that was supposed to be a guy, and it it, it did. It was not until the wig came off that I realized, realized who it yeah, was. Because the makeup is like, I mean, once you know it's him and you see him the next time in the makeup, you go, oh, "Okay, that's Yul Brynner." But, but the the makeup but, is is actually so good that I was like, "That's a guy." And wait, is it a guy? <laughs> but um, the, the question is, what guy? And it's Yul Brynner. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Oh, it was so good. Um, yeah. 
and then yeah okay let's talk not about... him singing of course he's, he's lip singing but yeah yeah no yeah but it, it uh, still a touching performance somehow <laughs> yeah um, and then Racco welch is the mistress of the whip yes um was also something i appreciated as a 16 year old because i was totally in love with Racco welch so um uh still kind of him but yeah yeah well yeah i mean plus as a 16 year old lots of nudity in that scene yep oh yeah yeah there's all the nudity around her not her she she never gets naked but uh um but yeah there's all the other nudity around her of all the 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 slave girls who are uh rowing supposedly rowing the ship you know yeah because i guess we should just get like yeah well, let's get to the magic christian itself so yeah they go they all get on this boat they they they're selling tickets to this boat called the Magic Christian, and of course, Guy Grant is behind all of it. But uh, you don't know that you just just you just know that the whole country is going crazy. Wait, thing about hold on, because this is maybe this is going to blow my mind. And I, I was the Magic Christian never existed, or because I thought he got the idea in the movie to start getting people onto the boat to start like getting like kind of like laying the groundwork so that people would or the people he wanted would buy That's tickets. I said. He's, he was behind the whole thing i in, thought in, in the book he's the one in the book he's the one who determines who actually gets on board the ship see like I, all the applications for it for the where only only the the best sort of people can be on the ship he's the one who decides who goes on the ship yeah well i i got that he had had like i i thought it was a real ship that he had bribed and redirected like bribed the obviously there's still the reveal later on that there is no boat they've been in a warehouse but i thought like he had somebody somehow tricked people and that the magic christian was a real thing he had just diverted everybody onto his thing oh my no, god no, I'm an idiot. no no it's it's all a setup because you know they bored they don't board onto a ship. They board through a through a building, you know. Yeah, but I I, but, I know. I just I thought I remember in the movie the moment yeah. that he gets the idea to like do the magic Christian thing. Okay, well, whatever. No, no, it's a setup. The entire thing's a setup by him. Yeah. It's just, but you you see advertisements for it on television. You hear you see it in the paper and all this stuff, and it's like, oh, the magic Christian. The whole country's going crazy about this this boat this new boat that's going to, you know, everybody has to be on anybody that's anybody has to be on. And so, yeah, he, uh, he, he sets this entire thing up. That's the, that's kind of the whole point is that, is that it's just this, this giant prank he's playing on the whole country. Well, I guess I should have watched this a third time. I did think about it. I was like, <laughs> should I watch it again? I liked it. <laughs> well, it, they, they purposely kind of misdirect you, you know, they don't want to give away the game. So a lot of it is not said, but it's all a setup. I mean, everything everything in this movie is a setup by Guy Grant. I know, and I remember thinking that yeah. and kind of saying the same thing in this episode and that, that realization on my second viewing that all of the crazy stuff they see on TV or around them has been set right. up for him. And yet even the captain, even the captain on the boat who uh, um, uh, played by Wilfred Hyde White um, He's he's an actor. They're all they're all actors. He's not a real captain. You know, they're, they're all like or he is a real captain. He's famous, but he's been paid to 
play this buffoon of a captain on this boat, basically. You know, yeah. and misdirect people and make it look like he's like being, you know, at one point that terrorists have taken over the cabin and all this, you know, I mean, that all, and then of course people check out him and everything's fine. You know, it's like every, it's like everything in this movie is just like, just, you know, a prank on top of a prank on top of a prank. I, so, all of that, all of that makes sense now. <laughs> I, I just thought like, oh, he's just somehow messing with the closed circuit or he's got the captain to do crazy things on the camera. And like I just didn't I didn't think about it like why this would be no everybody everybody anybody that is anybody that is involved in anything even in a position of power has been paid off to act the way they're acting yeah oh my gosh I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna watch this movie again this weekend holy cow I can't believe I missed yeah. that okay yeah and the I mean the only reason Blacko Welch's character exists is because she's meant you know it's just meant to blow those people's minds when they try to escape the ship and they realize that the ship's being powered by naked slave girls you know i mean that's just a ridiculous joke that's like like what are the chances you know i mean they have to obviously divert everybody through that area to make that pay off right but look how much money is being spent to set up this this like you know 30 second joke in the movie you know by this by this incredibly rich guy you know so i mean it's just layers and layers and layers of just silliness on top of each other you know what i would i would like to pair this with it, they're not they're not exactly similar but it it's it does make me think of uh the ruling class peter medak's medak the ruling class uh, i think there's well i love one i love the ruling class so i love that movie and yeah it's actually a good pairing with this movie there's another movie that i would pair with this movie actually and that's Casino Royale. Okay. Well, I well, um, mainly because some of the same people are in that movie. Uh, it was done like the year. This was done the year after Casino Royale, or like maybe two years after Casino Royale. And then the director of this movie is one of the five directors on Casino Royale. Oh, okay. Hey. So Peter Sellers' scenes in Casino Royale were directed by Joseph McGrath, who did this movie. Um, the reason. I brought up uh, the ruling class, which is, I mean, it's going to be obvious to you, I guess, but uh, they, they both kind of have, um, or they both are kind of about what the wealthy are allowed to get away with in British society and in the British class system, what, what the, uh, what British society, I, I should say, wealthy society is willing to put up with uh, among its ranks. And, um, they, I guess they both kind of have, although it, it, less so in this movie, but more so in, in run class, the idea that the only thing um, British society won't really tolerate is uh, like unprompted charity. <laughs> I yeah. guess there's no way that that's really actually stated in this movie. It's just that through, through process of the, that all we see is, is kind of a, a different forms of, um, I guess abuse, not really abuse, but just kind of manipulation and, and uh, cynicism, as you said. Um, but let's. The film, the film I would actually, I mean, that pairs with this the best, though it's a way better structured and uh, probably uh, um, executed film, is uh, Boonwell's um, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. I have not. Have you seen I haven't oh. seen that yet. I, I like Boone well, but I, I have not seen that one. Yeah. 
So like these 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 like these like super rich you know bourgeois people are or bougie as people like to say um, are like they they try to they keep trying to dine together they try keep trying to get together for this dinner and then the guy who is like um, they 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 keep trying to dine together it's not a guy that you know, but it's but every but every time they do things interrupt them and it keeps getting increasingly and more increasingly distracted by everything going on around them and they keep you know it's it's just ridiculous and then it goes and of course it goes on this like surreal dream sequences and all this stuff but it is just like along the same theme as this movie but i say more intricately uh, explored and probably a, a better film but uh, definitely a better film because moonwell is amazing but uh but it is it is funny that that you know just you know, Boonwell just delights in, in in just torturing the characters in the film. You know? <laughs> and, I will, yeah, I need to get more deeper into into him. I've only seen a few. I really like yeah. the Exterminating Angel a lot. Really good movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, no, he's, he's he's pretty cool. But I would I would say that movie is actually the perfect film to pair with this uh, thematically, but for just for the same level of energy and ridiculousness, I think Casino Royale like marries perfectly with this, mainly because it's the same director and it's yeah. for certain things. So I, and stars, you know. I honestly think the other movie you chose, uh, Serial, which we'll be discussing next, fits pretty well with this too. I, I, I yeah, think, it does. It does. I think it's got some really interesting parallels um, that I, I, I'm looking forward to talking about. In, in a few yeah. minutes. But before we go so on one of those that, parallels would be Christopher Lee, who we still have yet to discuss. Yeah, that's what I was, was going to say. Before we go on yeah. to that, let's talk about Christopher Lee, who is All right. barely in this movie, I will say. <laughs> like, it, it is a, a one-scene cameo and then another shot later on. Yeah, uh, a couple shots, yeah. There's a couple shots. But, yeah. Um, it, it's more it, than two. I think there's like three or four shots. But it's... I mean, it's a great cameo. <laughs> it's a great little... It's memorable. Movie. And I will say that seeing this as... So, like, I did not see this movie for, like, maybe 20 years after I saw it as a teenager. So I watched it a couple times when it was loaned to me. And then I did not see it for a very long time until I got a VHS of it. And uh, right before the DVD, you know, I was like, I got it, like, really cheap at, like, a garage sale or something like that. And... um um, and I saw the film again. I was just like, and the, the scene I remembered. So I remembered three scenes from the film mostly, and they were the uh, getting money out of the the crap scene, <laughs> and uh, Raquel Welch with the whip because naturally it's Raquel <laughs> Welch with the whip, scantily clad, and Christopher Lee as Dracula roaming the halls of the Magic Christian. You know, and this weird kind of like red lighting, you know, in the hallway and him just stalking around as Dracula and you and 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 for like a long time I was like was Christopher Lee in that movie you know and I, I had to remember oh yeah that's right he was in this movie you know but I had that in my head but I was like I I going I gotta watch that movie again I didn't see it for for years you know so um so um yeah uh it, it's a really strange thing in the middle yeah it's just it's just another thing guy grant is he's just and i don't know if it's supposed to be christopher lee that's what i was gonna ask what do you think but i if it's yeah i've wondered that actually is is it supposed to be actually be him 
just dressed as Dracula or is it just an actor who happens to look like him playing Dracula? Well, and he, my guess, I mean, I like to think it's actually Christopher Lee on the boat. I would too, but the, the lady doesn't seem to recognize him or maybe she does recognize him once he, he bears his fangs. And that could be, I don't know, but he'd already been in several of the, of the Dracula films by that point. So he was super, I mean, the reason he's in the film as Drac as a vampire is because he's super famous as Dracula. So um, I, I would, if it's, the thing is in the credits, he's just ship's vampire. So. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is a funny credit to think that the ship just has a, a it is a crew position. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, we have an ensign and we have a chef and we have a vampire. <laughs> you know? It is a really funny credit. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, trying to think of what else uh, to talk about. Um, I think, I mean, that, that, that's going to kind of do it for my notes. We'll, we'll have I mean, more to a, say. There, yeah, but I mean, there are like like Richard Attenborough is in the film briefly, you know, as the as the, the rowing coach. There's a lot of like, if you watch British films, um, there's there's a lot of little cameos like Graham Stark, who is in the P the Pink Panther movies. Uh, he shows up as one of the waiters at the restaurant. Um, the um, the guy who runs the restaurant with, with the caviar scene is Ferdy Maine, who is in the Fearless Vampire Killers. He's a he plays vampires in several films actually. Well, speaking of that, Roman Polanski um, is in here. And, and yeah, and from the Fearless Vampire Killers, you also Roman Polanski, and that would have been out the year before this movie or two years before this movie. So, um, yeah, both of them are in. Yeah, and Roman Polanski's just in like a, a little cameo, drinking in a bar, basically. Um, but yeah, there's lots of, and if you watch British films, there's tons of little cameos in this movie. Just everybody you see, you go, oh, yeah, there's that guy. There's that. Guy. Yeah, you may not know who they are, but you go, oh, there's that guy. Who is the guy at the uh, on the Magic Christian at the end that um, that gets the the two uh, male dancers? Um, I think he's just listed as like angry general or something like like his credit isn't isn't very like he doesn't have a name name but he's sitting next to guy and he says something oh it's when he makes the racist comment. And then guy like kind of like notices it, and oh, oh, out, oh. out come the two like mostly naked male like bodybuilder dancers. Yeah, um, that's uh, he looked very familiar. Oh, Mad Major, it's Terrence Alexander, I think. Maybe. I because yeah, it, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. With the mustache, he looked a little bit like Terry Thomas, but he didn't have the gap in his teeth. So I, right. I knew it wasn't him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just it. You see a lot of these guys and you go, oh, I've seen these guys in like everything. I mean, this guy was on the Avengers and stuff, you know? So, I mean, you've probably seen him a zillion times. He's, he has thousands of credits, you know? So you... That would oh, not he was be in, uh, he's in the Vault of Horror. He was in the Vault of Horror. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what you know him from. Maybe. I was going to also just say that that is not uh, not Marvel's The Avengers. No, that is the British Avengers, which is equally equally an influence of mine. <laughs> so, from my childhood. So, I mean, I saw The Avengers and I read The Avengers. So, you know, two different groups. 
Well, um, that's going to have to do it for this part of the discussion. Um, this is a, a this is a movie I recommend. I'm like I just said, I'm probably going to watch this again this weekend uh, after having my mind blown by something very obvious that I missed in the movie. Um, uh, I enjoy it. I really do. Like it, it doesn't completely satisfy. Like it doesn't have a structure that that kind of like. Well, it's got a weird structure, and the way it ends, it, it, it's kind of a nice little visual uh, echo of the beginning, like kind of a, a full circle sort of thing, where they go and they sleep in the park and bribe the uh, the park, the whatever the officer that it had stopped Ringo Starr from sleeping there in the beginning of the movie. Um, so that that that's, I mean, that brings it full circle, but it also just doesn't have a, a grand. Unif like, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. Like, it, it's not the well, most satisfying film, but it's very fun. Well, I, I, before we go, we we do need to talk about that the the vat scene at the end. Okay. Okay. Because I, I I know we touched on it earlier, but I don't think we actually described what happens in it. Yeah, I mean, we did describe. You did you did say them like digging in it to to get tenors and stuff, but um, so after they get off the magic Christian they're in the in the center of the city and guy is making announcements on a on a megaphone to, you know saying we're we're you know like we're not we're we're almost ready we're almost ready free money free money is almost ready you know things like that and then uh, and that of course drags the crowd like what are they doing over what are they doing there's like a there's like a big pit being dug and then this truck pulls up and delivers uh urine and uh, feces and blood, and they put it in this big pool, and then he throws a bunch of money in it, and then of course everybody has to dive in and get the money. If they want free money, they have to dive into this this mess, and they and they're all tentative about doing it, and then eventually a lot of them end up in it just trying to grab dollars in this mass of you know piss shit and money, you know. So, and when I remember watching it as a teenager. I was like, oh my God, this is just like the most, you know, transgressive scene I've ever seen. Not that I knew that word at the time, but it was just like, it was just so like, oh my God, you've got to see the guys. I saw this movie and it's like, there's this amazing scene in it. And some people had seen it and they go, oh yeah, it's really disgusting and all that stuff. But the thing is now I watch it and I go, that movie, that's not, that scene does not go far enough. It, it, it's, it, I feel like, it just kind of it, it's actually kind of underplayed and i remember it as being so, so much more gross than it actually is because you know i mean I, I don't know how you felt about it watching it for the first time but for well, me it was just like a kind of underwhelming scene again because to me that was the big payoff in the film like this is as far as they can push it at that time and now i'm kind of like well it yeah it's still true but i also feel like it doesn't pay off as well as i remembered it is gross. I'll, I'll give it that. Like it did, it right. did make me, it, I mean, it didn't trigger a gag reflex or anything, but it did make me go like, Oh, that's really gross. Um, but, but you after, also know you're not really in that stuff, you know? So. No, no. After the madcap explosion of the magic Christian, like for how fre frenetic and well frenzied and, and chaotic it is for a couple of minutes, it, it all seems like a pretty, I mean, it seems just a, a a little bit weak, I guess. The way it's the way it's presented and the way it ends, right there. Yeah. But um, 
I, I mean, but I get what they're going for, and I think it's it's fine. It, it just, um, I don't know, the ending, like the the way the movie just ends, or the way the movie just kind of like wraps around and 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 wraps everything up. Did uh, I, I wouldn't quite call it a letdown, but I I just I, I felt like it maybe. I don't know what I'm saying. It was fine. I, I like. I think. It. I think it ran out of stuff to say, and they just ended the movie. You know, I mean, they end up back in the park, and you know, you know, bribing, bribing the, you know, an, another, another um, warden. You know, just to allow them to sleep in the park. You know, so. Um, but, but it's also, but I, I think when I first saw that scene, when I was younger, I thought it meant that they had run out of money. Like he'd given the rest. I I thought he had given the rest of his money away, and so they just ended up in the park. But now I just realized, nah, he's just going. He's just continuing the game. You know, it's just like, yeah, we want to go sleep in the park. You know, because that's where Ringo was found. You know, Ringo's character was found, and it's just like, oh, we're gonna go back to the park and just you know be simple. You know, but I I honestly thought that they had run out of money, and that's why they ended up there. But I don't think that's what it was. No, clearly, and and he actually has the line where he's like, "This is this is just the place to work on our our plans or whatever." Right. Like, yeah, and I it, missed that as a kid. Yeah. It sounds like they're going to continue, but it. Yeah. Which. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm getting really critical of it now because we're we're talking about it. But oh, that's um, what we do. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I I do think it's fine. I, I just think that it doesn't like the the movie itself. Um, it doesn't quite wow me, even though I, I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it on both viewings, and I look forward to the third viewing very soon. Very good. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, it's one that I'm actually going to revisit more now that I'm back in the swing of it. And uh, it, it's like, yeah, now, now that I own it, it's like, yeah, now I'll probably watch it more often and, and get a kick out of the scenes that so some of the scenes are, are fantastic, you know. Yeah, I'm just gonna. Um, and I'm gonna say, I really like Ringo in this movie. You yeah, know, I, I mean, I I always like Ringo, but I mean, I really like him in this movie. I think he's like a lot of fun, and is playing along just nicely. You know, whether Sellers is stealing scenes from him or stealing lines from him, and not or not, when he's called upon to do little bits of comedy, you know, where he's got lines and things like that. I think he delivers it quite well and is really, really game. And uh, and they are and little I, bits of comedy. <laughs> like he, he does. Right, yeah, they're not like anything extended or anything like that. But, you know, he, but like the bit with the, the traffic warden where, you know, Sellers is annoying the traffic warden. And at the same time, uh, Ringo is sitting in the car and reading, you know, reading from this instruction manual and just really annoying these Spike Milligan's character in a separate conversation. So they're both doing this at the same time. And I just really just love his attitude in that scene. It's just like, it, it, it's like he's like oblivious to the actual thing going on outside the car, you know? Yeah, um, Ringo is, is like, as a Beatle, I think he's my favorite. Like, I, I, I really like, the songs that he sings, I, I mean, I like the Ringo songs. Uh, I think he's got like the best attitude. <laughs> he just wants to play music with his friends. Um, yeah. I, I, I find him very endearing. In this movie, it's, I didn't know the thing about Peter Sellers stealing bits from him, although I, I could have guessed that. But um, I did think that he was 
good in the bits that he got to do, but he didn't get to do a lot. Uh, right. He, he's he's mostly a silent foil and says a yeah, couple he, of things here and there. Yeah. But the lines he delivers are dead on. I mean, he, he's, he just has these. And that's why that old values is crumbling line. The old values are crumbling line sticks with me so well is because <laughs> it, it's just it's a throwaway line. But it's just it's kind of like, you know, when like Popeye's in a fight. Right. And he's like, hey, and then, he, and then he just mutters something. Oh, yeah. Over on the side. And it's just a throwaway line. But it's like you remember these things. It's just like, oh, OK, you know it's just it's just this kind of like on the outside of whatever's going on and you just and you pick up on it and you know i don't think you're i don't think you're meant to remember the old values are crumbling but it's really funny you know yeah no it, it is a it is a funny movie um i i can't believe I, I just had this impression of it that it wasn't very good all this time that it was kind of a uh a crappy unfunny movie because i thought it was really funny actually um Anyway, yeah, uh, that was uh, Magic Christian. And um, we're going to take another break. And we'll be back in just a minute. We're going to be discussing another uh, another satire with Christopher Lee in a cameo, a bigger one this time, uh, 1980s serial. Morning. Dork. There's something crazy going on, and I don't think it's us. For the people of beautiful Marin County, California. Love plays a big part in everything they do. I think it would do you good to get your oil changed. They just love loving. It doesn't matter who. Ladies, no. give me a break. It's only 8 in the morning. Serial. Rated R. Now showing at the Regency One San Francisco and at other Bay Area theaters. Well, let me get, get into it then. Okay. Okay. Uh, Serial is a 1980 comedy film uh, following... God damn it, I'm already... Okay, Serial from 1980. Uh, fuck it, I'll put it in later. You're right. We're just going to talk about Serial. Write it out. <laughs> or maybe I won't cut it in and people are just going to hear me uh, mumble, or fumbling and mumbling a little bit. Uh, yeah, you can just say... Just go, ah, today we're talking about Serial, 1980 film about trendiness in Marin County, you know, in, the, you know, in Northern California during the late 1970s. And, you know, yeah, it's following the, the comings and goings and uh, of, of basically the aging hippie generation in, in kind of an affluent area of uh, Northern California. Uh, I should say the aging affluent hippie generation. I, I would say it's more the new age 70s than the aging hippie. I mean, it's because a lot of it is a lot of our younger people. They're not hippies, but they are doing no, a lot no, of no like, but i i would say that people like there are certainly hippies in it but well i i would i just mean like like most of the main characters like i would say martin mole and sally kellerman and all that they 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 seem of the age that they would have been hippies and this isn't kind of what they've grown up into not that they are currently hippies but you're right i guess new age would, but would a certain a proportion of the people in the film were not necessarily hippies they're more affluent than than people who normally would have been hippies. Some of them certainly were hippies and became affluent and kind of became hypocritical because of it. But the bulk of the people are fairly well off, but they're dealing in trends that were very prevalent in the late seventies, mid seventies, late seventies that even my mom got into some of them. But, um, and this is like, right. This is like pre Reagan. This is like late seventies. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
No, I'm just, I'm just saying um, the people in this film, I mean, it's Northern California. So they're pretty liberal, even though they're, you know, generally affluent, you know, generally well off and, and have like high paying jobs and stuff, but they're not, most of them are not Republicans. You can imagine a few of them would be, but they are definitely, you know, kind of lefties. And, and, and some of them certainly would be old hippies or, or aging hippies. But a, but a lot of it is just, it's not so much about the hippies as it is about the new age consciousness raising kind of stuff in the 70s. And the, and the, and the wacky trends that people get caught in and the, this kind of the double talk um, you know, like the psychiatric double talk and all that, you know, that is all ridiculous and, and kind of all cancels itself out every, you know, with, with every new patient. And it's, it's just very, uh, you know, there, and there's a lot of, uh, sexual revolution stuff in there too. It's not, you know, and not all of that came out of hippieism, you know, but, um, it, there's a lot of satir, um, there's a lot of satire, about this changing sexual mores of the time. Um, so, I mean, it kind of touches on a whole lot of stuff, but I don't necessarily think most of the people are aging hippies. I'm just taking issue with that phrase. That's all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I mean, this is, <laughs> that's fair. Uh, I, I, uh, and uh, yeah. Not that there are hippies in it, but there's also like modern cults and all sorts of stuff in it, you know. So, and I, I, you could commonly look at all of that stuff and go, ah, it's all hippie stuff, but it's not, you know, there's a lot of different levels to it. Well, um, I want to get back to, to something you, 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 uh, you, you mentioned Reagan though, uh, this book and the film, the book was, uh, written several years earlier. And of course the movie right. comes out before Reagan, but the, the specter of Reagan kind of looms over. This it movie. comes. It, I think Reagan was voted in that year. Yeah, but, but the there's movie... the politics. Yeah, are, are, of the the era are definitely edging towards Reaganism after Carter. They're like, but, there's no way there's going to be a Democratic, you know, president in 1980. The, and, um, go ahead. And and so you you know Reaganism's creeping in because because I mean and and, and especially since it's California, which was his state. Um, that you can definitely feel that aura around it. And actually, when we get closer to the end of this thing, I mean, I kind of have a point to make about that, but. Okay. Well, let's, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back around to some of that. Um, There's another one you picked. Uh, I, I had never heard of this movie before. Um, and when it's you really mentioned obscure. it. Yeah. Go ahead. What? I said, it's really obscure these days. Yeah. But I, I looked at it. And when it started, I, I was kind of amazed I hadn't heard anything about it. Like, I, I just never even, I don't think I've ever even seen the cover anywhere. But, you know, uh, the people that are in it, not, uh, I mean, Christopher Lee has a very small part, but he's, that I hadn't heard of it, even like looking through his filmography, I must have seen it and just not remembered it. But Martin Mull, I love Martin Mull, uh, Sally Kel Kellerman, Bill Macy is in, like in this, and I like him a lot. Uh, yeah, I just there's a lot of great people in it, and it it seems to have just kind of been forgotten. Oh, Tom Smothers, right? Uh, yep. Peter Boner is, is in it. It is, I guess, so specific to its time, and maybe even to its place. 
and that it it just didn't really catch on enough to you know uh stick in the popular consciousness uh what 40 years later now 42 yeah uh but i'd never heard of it before you mentioned it i watched it um i'm not gonna i'm gonna say i i i don't love this movie but it was such a kind of a pleasure to watch it like it was just like a like you know a time that i was i was very young for i would not have been like conscious of, of the world at this time but it's still like very much my i wouldn't say my childhood but you know the the culture that i was watching at the time this movie yeah, like what, that one I or two when you were born uh, i would have been two when this came out yeah right yeah I, i'm just saying like that early 80s yeah like, that I was kind of becoming aware of like what TV, it, like things on TV and movies a couple years later, but you know, this aesthetic is still around right. at the time. And of course you're like at that time, n- nothing you're watching is new. Like it is today. Today, my kids only watch really new stuff. But when I was a kid, everything I was watching was <laughs> old or oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Me too. Yeah. So, uh, so I would have sixties reruns, you know. It's like yeah, and fifties, fifties and sixties TV shows like crazy, and then movies even older than that. I grew up on those, and that's just what I like, you know. So yeah, the amount of like my favorite shows that I either wasn't alive for or like ended when I was just a couple years old, and I wouldn't have been watching them, but through reruns, you know, just became. Uh, yeah part of my childhood anyway so uh that was kind of like a long way of saying that just this was pleasant to watch because of the faces in it um the the rhythms the styles uh on display like the fashion and everything about it was just like this was nice to watch but um it has a really strong um 70s tv vibe to it too like you could see this as a sitcom you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, profane in parts and, and definitely made for the movies, but you could also see this easily being like a, you know, a, a series on TV and like literally where you could do it as a serial, you could do it as like, you know, maybe uh, a sitcom version of Tales of the City, you know, which, you know, was, you know, Tales of the City, uh, Armistead Malfan was turned into a, a PBS series, you know, and it's like, it would be like a similar, similar area, similar, you know, group of people being touched on in some ways. Um, but uh, uh, I'd say this one's probably more, far more homophobic than that one is, because that one's definitely not homophobic. Um, but yeah, I could see this being a, a easily being a TV show. And the main reason it is, is because the guy who directed it was mostly a TV producer and creator and and writer and worked on a lot of sitcoms in the 60s and 70s yeah dick and, and van dyke created. correct bill person yeah he worked on dick van dyke he worked on that girl he worked on, i think he co-created that girl i think um but yeah uh, bill persky is his name and uh not bill blasky not that son of a bitch mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but um, yeah he created that girl and uh, and uh he also directed um like a hundred episodes of Kate and Allie. So, uh, so that would have been after serial. I think serial is really his only big movie. Um, 
but uh but yeah you definitely get that you get that kind of sitcom feeling at times in this movie where you know it's not really all that cinematic a film and feel you know it's just it's more of a situation comedy kind of look and feel except there's like nudity and you know <laughs> and a lot of language but um but yeah i i mean i could see this making the jump the way that mash did and i say that obviously because sally kellerman is in it but um yeah it, that, that it could it could have been a uh it could have been the jumping off point for a show yeah. that like like because mash the movie is is certainly a lot more uh explicit than the show was able to get sure. anywhere near yeah but, um, uh, you know and also a satire and also you know yeah you know that plays well on tv so so um how did this movie come to you because you so you mentioned having I, I may have mentioned this on another episode we talked about. I, I think I did, but um growing up, my mom my mom was a constant reader. Um and her books were usually in the bathroom. So if she was reading a book, it was sitting in the bathroom. And so if you went in and used the bathroom and you're like bored, you go, Hey, what's this book here? Well, naturally, if it's your mom's book, you start looking for the dirty parts, right? Hmm. when you're a kid and so and a lot of quite a lot of the books she had had dirty parts in them because you know she would read she wrote a wide variety of stuff i mean she i mean that's where i first read jaws was the i read her copy of jaws when i was like a kid and uh like the year after it came out i read the book and i was like oh you know what's this you know i was like um and uh and you know, so like if she would be reading like uh, Rich Man, Poor Man, or she'd be reading, you know, Harold Robbins, his like trashy novels or, you know, but she'd also be reading horror. She read a lot of Dean Koontz and she loves Stephen King. And so my first experiences reading both of those guys was because my mom had the books and, you know, she she was really, really into horror. Uh, Peter Straub, that's another one. She, you know, was reading Floating Dragon. And I was like, what's this book? And I was just like, oh, I mean, Ghost Story. I have her Jesus. copies of Ghost Story. <laughs> Floating I, still have, I still have a lot of the books that she read. I kept them. Oh, no, I was just like, Floating Dragon. That's a, that, like, I'm just trying to imagine my mom reading anything like Floating Dragon. and, and Yeah, <laughs> but she'd also read science fiction. And so, like, um, I, I have her... Um, I have her copy of Lucifer's Hammer, which is, I think, uh, Jerry Cornell and uh, Larry Niven, which is like a hardcore, like, uh, end of the world sci-fi novel. And, uh, um, but yeah, so I, a whole bunch of books that she read, I ended up just keeping them, you know, because otherwise she's going to throw them away, you know, so. Yeah. Um, and it's just, oh, I'm interested in that. And so I would just take it, you know, and so I had just started building a library of books. You know, I only I kept in hidden a couple of the dirtier ones, but, uh, but, you know, I, I just remember just, uh, reading lots of these books. Logan's run is another one she read, but, you know, so, so she was, she was interested in whatever was sitting on the checkout counter and looked interesting to her, but she had a wide variety of interests. So she would, she would read any genre. I mean, she was also reading Judith Krantz and Erica Young and, and, uh, that's how I ended up reading Fear of Flying. You know, it's like, I was reading, definitely reading books as a kid that I wasn't supposed to be, but, <clears throat> and like one day we went to the hospital, my brother had a checkup and he was, he had been sick and we went to the hospital and I, because it was the seventies and nobody cared about this stuff. Um, and I was like, I was like 
13 at the time. And I got to sit in the car and just kind of wait for them. I didn't want to go into the hospital. So what book did my mom have in the car with her? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. (laughs) And that was my first experience reading Hunter S. Thompson. And he blew my mind at 13. So yeah, I can imagine. Wow. uh, What the hell is this book? (laughs) You know, it's like I and me describing what I read in that book, you know, you know, I I did read the whole thing eventually, you know, because she brought it back in the house and stuff, but she brought it with her to read, you know, and she left it in the car. And uh, and I was just like, yeah, that's great. So the serial is another one that she was reading. And uh, I just happened to be, when she had the book, I just happened to already be a big Martin Mull fan. I had a couple of his albums and uh, his comedy albums. And um, I would watch him on anytime he showed up on anything on TV. And, uh, you know, got a little taste of Fernwood tonight. And, and, uh, and I was just like, uh, oh, man, I love this guy. He's hilarious, you know, and, and he was, and, and so I, I saw he was on the cover of the book and I'm like, what the heck? And so uh, I, you know, started flipping through the book and it was, and, and, and the thing is the book is like all the chapters are like five, six pages long. It's, they're not very long at all. You know, I think maybe the longest one is like maybe 10 pages, but there is, there's, there's a chapter for every week in the year, basically. It goes through a year in the life of these people. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's a really quick read. You know, and it, it's, you know, because it's, you know, it's, it's not even like 300 pages long. It's like uh, maybe two, 250 or something like that. But um, um, so, yeah, I and I still have that copy of the book. And there are there are pictures from the movie in the book in the center. And one of those pictures is uh, is of Christopher Lee. And I was like, what the heck? You know, <laughs> and um, and so uh, when it uh it eventually uh came to anchorage very briefly and my mom wanted to see the movie because she really liked the book and and she knew i'd been looking at the book so i didn't know she actually knew i read the whole thing but she knew i liked martin mull so she said you want you know so i'm she says i'm gonna go see this you want to go see it and i go yeah and i was i was like uh i think 15 at the time it came out and uh um so i got to go see this movie with my mom and, you know, it was, it was a fun time, but it was like, oh, <laughs> you know, uh, it was pretty cool. But uh, but I also, but even though that happened and I saw it in a theater, I mean, I did not love the movie. I thought it was pretty funny, but, I, and some scenes really had me busting up, but I was also kind of bored by some of it, you know, because I didn't, and I, I have to be honest, I didn't get some of the jokes in the film when I was watching it, so and that's natural when you're a kid. You think you know everything, but you don't. And stuff, some stuff flies over your head. You don't get the older references and stuff. So, um, um, yeah, that that was my experience with the movie. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can get that being a little, uh, a little kind of maybe bored as a, a teenager watching this. There's a lot of like kind of prurient stuff in it. There's a lot of. Uh, Oh, I like um, the dirty stuff. Yeah. 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 But that, then there, there's a lot that is kind of just these 30 uh, somethings or 40 somethings um, kind of like complaining about their wives and their jobs and their, it, it, it is their sex it, lives, you know? Yeah. It, it is kind of a, kind of a little bit of a soap opera 
but uh, very much so. Yeah. But but without any of the the you know super dramatic you know long lost twin and and murder and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I I mean I liked the I liked this movie. Uh, I I kind of felt that it, it like I went back and we rewatched the Magic Christian almost immediately, and I almost watched Serial again today in, in preparation for recording, and I didn't. And um, I'm not I'm not sure if I'll I'll go back to this movie again. Um, I don't I'm not I don't have anything really to complain about it, but it, it is it makes a, an interesting pairing with the Magic Christian in that I, I think their 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 like political leanings are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Where, where Magic Christian is is lampooning the elite and capitalism and you know the 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 uh, love of money and, and like well just everything that you can think of in kind of a more um, conservative society, right? This, and then they do it in a very kind of uh, very anarchist way. Yeah, you know? the, the serial is very much a movie about like realizing that that true happiness lies in the nuclear family and the very the status quo. Yeah. yeah. The status quo, which I found, I found like, well, and that, I was, certainly... that was kind of where I was kind of, yeah. You, that's what I was going to mention about by the end of the film, you, it, you realize that they are basically embracing the coming Reaganism. Mm hmm that's that's kind of what it, it that's what it feels like is like oh we're 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 moving we're happy now we're moving into the future that, that we're going to get away from all this crazy stuff and the way they do it is like going to a nice safe place in the country and 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 just living a normal life which to me is like the you know the the coming of of, of all the crap in the 80s you know so and the the kid is uh is so happy once the, her father starts to like crack down on her freedom uh right you know she criticizes it and runs away with a cult yeah. at the beginning of the film when she gets her back you know she's like happy that he's like being his normal self again so um i guess we, we can talk a little bit about the plot uh as it is but it, it's um so martin mole is harvey Hol holroyd he's uh kind of nearing a midlife crisis he's I don't know. I, I I don't know where the in on the, to get in on this plot, like, but it's just all these people. Well, uh, he middle... and his wife, he and his wife are clearly on the outs, and he both of them are unsatisfied sexually and 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 emotionally, and he's just kind of tired. He's just he's getting tired with all the crap in life, and especially he's getting tired. He's really getting tired of just all the weirdness around him about all the all these all these like all the, the 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 people who are like embracing all these weird new cults and and uh beliefs and and you know it is holdover hippie stuff but it's in a new it's it and it's a decade later and it's been transformed into like est meetings and you know transcendental meditation and 
and all this kind of lovey-dovey stuff and and getting in touch with your inner selves and and you know who knows maybe one of them has a copy of Linda Goodman's Sun Sign sitting on the table somewhere you know which my mom did. Um, as I said, my mom got into some of these weird things when she got divorced in the mid seventies. And so, I mean, I even saw her, you know, reading like freaking L. Ron Hubbard at one point, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, and she was like definitely trying everything and trying all sorts of drugs and trying all, you know, she was kind of like finding her freedom, you know, after, after being a mom for, you know, 13 years, she was, you know, definitely trying to kind of find herself. And so she, she was like reading all sorts of weird, you know, psychobabble type books, you know, and uh, from Jonathan Livingston Siegel all on down and, uh, um, you know, trying to find herself, you know, in quotes, I got to find myself. And that's kind of what he's tired of. He's tired of all these people just, just go, you know, trying to throw everything at him and say, oh, you got to try this. You got to try that. You know, hey, how come you guys are into this? You know, and like, hey, yeah, yeah, we're into this now. And we, we'd really like to swing with you and your wife. And, you know, it's like, uh, he's tired of it, period. And it seems like his, his friend Sam is uh, on the same. Well, I don't know. Sam seems to be uh, uh, like, I don't know. He, he what am he's I trying to say? He's horny as hell. Yeah. He's horny as hell. He seems to be uh, tired of, they're, they're, well, they're both tired of, their lives but uh i think sam wants to be a little wilder than he is and uh yeah harvey yeah, he, decides, want, he, thinks, he thinks his way to happiness is partying yeah and and well as we see later in the movie it it kind of seems like maybe it was like he 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 seems much happier and certainly it's not yeah. until he he's kind of like talked out of that lifestyle that he starts to get really depressed um it I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I, there isn't a lot. We can just kind of like cover parts of the plot. As... It's, it's hard because there's not, I, I mean, ex, ex, it's very episodic. Yeah. And yeah. there's not really, there's not really a plot as far as like, there's no intrigue going on. There's no, there's no, you know, nobody's doing one thing to, you know, get back at somebody else or anything like that. I mean, the, the real only thing you can pin anything around is the him trying to get his daughter back from the cult. And then everything else is just a series of, you know, scenes where people are, you know, you know, going to parties, having affairs, you know, then getting back at their ex for having an affair by having their own affair. And, you know, and then kind of just, you know, in general, just kind of, you know, showing all the all the strangeness that goes on, you know, not even behind closed doors in this in this area. It's like it's quite out in the open. And uh and definitely is it just has a lots of points to make about how ridiculous the sexual revolution is and all that and um and it, it I, I and harvey just kind of bounces from relationship to relationship for a while and that's kind of what it is but along the way his wife also starts to kind of find herself too and and try try out things and but somehow they manage to find their way back to each other you know yeah both um, of them, both of them find it empty and and they real and they they eventually realize that you know they kind of you know to get forward they gotta kind of get back together. The uh, just, he spends the movie just calling bullshit on everything. Yeah, that cult um, that cult storyline 
uh, I really thought the movie for, was going to forget about it. <laughs> I was like, the, I was seeing the time reach, like kind of like um, it was getting close to the end. Like it's, it, it would come back every once in a while. By the end of the movie, I was like, are they not going to resolve this? It, it, I don't know why it, uh, it, it just kind of seemed like, like I was scared they were not going to. Uh, and to, then they definitely got to it. <laughs> they know, did. So. They definitely do with, Christopher Lee, whose part in this is much bigger. He has several scenes and dialogue. Uh, and um, But you don't know it's him. N- well, no, you don't. You do it first, the first time you see him. Or maybe not, I can't remember which time you see him. because uh, No, you don't find out that he's he's that guy. Oh, no. You don't find he's, he's, about, he's in the gang until later in the film. No, you, you're right. You're right. I'm just saying you that, don't um, see you don't, you don't see him with his helmet off until the end that that scene. I I I, I know. I'm just saying. I can't remember which came first. The first time we see the gang, the motorcycle see the gang, gang first. They talk about them being the gay motorcycle gang, um, known as the Road Reamers. Yes, and but then, they're the they're the rather problematic part of the film. They are. They are. Um, and yet they're the heroes of the film. So. Yeah, that, that's the only thing that really bothers me about this movie. Although, I mean, there's a, there's some other things I don't like. It's politics I, I don't particularly agree with. But the homophobia of, of like, it's how cool it is when we find out that Christopher Lee, who interviewed Harvey for a job very early in the movie and kind of mocked him for not making enough money for kind of like, having no ambition and nearing middle age um it, it, like i was like oh if that's the only scene that he's in it's weird they got christopher lee doing trying i think trying to do kind of a very dodgy english or american accent um so um there's only so if you go on imdb there's only a there's only like two trivia bits on this movie that's how much people don't write about this movie but the the first one is I don't know if you've read it or not. No, but it, it's, it says that in his autobiography, autobiography, Tall, Dark, and Gruesome, Sir Christopher Lee identifies this movie as one that was particularly important to him, despite the fact that he played a relatively small part. The reasons being, it was the first time he got to act with an American accent, and also because he was cast against type. Okay, well, I, I was gonna, I, I I say dodgy American accent because it's. Maybe, maybe it's just it, his. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It is dodgy. It, it's because I. It just seems to me like he's being Christopher Lee, and I don't really see it as being an an American accent. Well, it is Christopher uh, Lee trying to do American doing. It, it's Christopher Lee sounding like Christopher Lee, but he is pronouncing his R's a little more strongly. Correct. Yes. Than uh, than he normally does. Um, so he's in in there early in the movie, and it seems like it's just a one shot scene to kind of humiliate Harvey. Um, yeah, and you figure he'll probably show up in another scene later, maybe uh, you know when he gets a job or something like. That. I didn't. I actually, only knowing that Christopher Lee is barely in this movie, I thought that was it. After because he didn't come back for a while, and I was like, okay, that was right. probably his one scene. And then when we find out that he is the 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 leader of this motorcycle gang that's been kind of like terrorizing anytime that tom smothers shows up uh he because the 
leader because the leader of the motorcycle gang has the has a thing for him or, or has the hots for tom smothers um, right whose, whose name in this movie is spike right um or reverend spike um, uh yeah i think so yeah so when you find out that that's christopher lee all of a sudden i i just thought i just went oh that's why they cast christopher lee because they need somebody who will be memorable in that one scene like you need somebody that the audience is going to recognize immediately because otherwise if it had just been somebody shows up later you have to go oh yeah that's that guy you know it's like yeah but the Uh, problem with the problem with that scene with that reveal it well i mean it it's kind of cute the way it happens it's funny but at the same time what harvey does to lee's character which is blackmail him because now he knows that he's the leader of this gay biker gang and black basically blackmails him into getting a job um even though they end up you know i would guess probably being friends by the end of the film you know regardless of the blackmail um uh it, it's it's using his homosexuality against him it is and the it's always treated kind of at least by the main character who is we're supposed to be identifying with it is treated as as uh as well you know as homosexuality was often treated by uh culture in the early 80s as you know a, a weakness in other a um something or, to be or villainous what's yeah, that or villainous or villainous yeah um but he, he does bristle at it one moment uh christopher lee when he calls him a he calls his uh gang a group of pansies or however he says it um right and christopher lee's like we are not pansies we have uh terrorized entire communities uh, um, yeah. like his character is great they get, to be, they get to be tough and they get to be you know and and but but they, again that that is on the edge of it that's kind of on the edge of being villains until you until you see what happens with their with the gang later in the film where they get to be heroes you know so I but would, they get to be heroes by destroying the cult's house <laughs> yeah know? yeah so, i would say that that christopher lee chris christopher lee in this like he is not playing the character as anything near stereotypically gay uh None of the, the gay characters in the movie are what what I would call stereotypically gay. Um, but it's just that they're they're treated by the characters, by the other main characters, as yes, as so uh, it, like the way that they're treated and the the fact that the movie is kind of seems to be siding with them. In I mean, except in except for them picking up on some of the cult members, you know, a couple of the cult members at the end of the, uh, the end of the fight um you really yeah and and talking about having crushes on this or that or whatever um yeah you don't really see them engaging in in, in t- stereotypically gay behavior that you would see in a movie at the time yeah you are correct i mean the only real thing that's you know would be the name of the the gang would be road reamers and that's the only real sign that they're like a gay biker gang yeah, yeah. it's like they're all I, dressed in black leather and, and wearing riding cycles and just being tough so it's like they look like a normal gang you know except for their jackets yeah i just love it or the logo i i love that reveal and how he acts and how it all plays plays through i think it's great it's my favorite part of the movie it's the most fun i have in the movie it's just like 
I, I just wish the movie hadn't like kept calling them all those derogatory terms and like kind of endorsing right. that behavior. Oh, that, of the time, so it's like it, it was, but I mean, it doesn't of, excuse it whatsoever. It actually makes it worse because it was the time. That's the yeah. way it was. It's just like it's hard to, and that's just it. That's why I myself, even though I enjoy the film, I I can't love it because even at the time it was like. It was a little heavy, you know, just yeah. that, you know, it's like that. That is my kind of my main problem with this movie in a nutshell it is just that I. I I don't necessarily think that these characters were, um, you know, is clearly they weren't they weren't like virtuous or likable or any of those things. As they were on well, there, there's a there's a character in the film who's one of uh um the the carol the uh who's played by pamela bellwood who's like a friend of uh tuesday wells character kate or kind of friend of or kate because continually i think a couple times in the movie you know she'll say something that's just kind of you know annoying you know where or kind of kind of snotty mm -hmm. and then they'll call her a cunt <laughs> you know and uh and uh, it's like a running gag in the film where it's like, she's like, Carol, you know, you've always been really open with me. I'd like to be open with you too. You're a cunt. And then mm. her, her friend Angie says, but extremely well-dressed. And Carol goes, oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks her for the, for the compliment about being well-dressed, but she kind of accepts that. And then later in the film, but at the end, at the end of the film, after it's all passed and stuff, um uh kate turns to carol and says you know kate you're still like oh she says she says you know what some things uh I, I i can't remember the full line but she ends up calling her a cunt again and carol just looks puzzled and she goes like like it like she's been trying to correct it or something like that and she goes still <laughs> you know it's just really funny you know and i miss any some people don't like that word but you know no, I yeah yeah it, it's like uh, my favorite word I, I just, okay, I'm just saying that I think the characters, for the most part, are kind of obnoxious and unlikable. And like, I, I, I'm oh, not yeah. saying I agree with their worldviews, but I just think that these, this movie's declarative statement that all of that needs to be abandoned and we just need to get back to the way things used to be is so antithetical to the, like, how I view the world and how I... Yeah, retrogressive, yeah. Yeah, that I, I, I just, I, it, it's what one of the main things that keeps me from kind of like really embracing this movie is, as you said earlier. Yeah, and the thing is, I don't think the person who wrote it believes that. I, I don't remember that from the book. Um, I, I, uh, Sarah McFadden, um, I mean, she was a writer in San Francisco and she certainly was lived in that, you know, the Marin County area and, and it was kind of observed a lot of this stuff, but. I believe she was a far more liberal person than the movie, than the story comes off. Um, and I certainly, you know, and, and I, I don't know if maybe ultimately the joke on, in the film is actually on the people who get out of it. You know, I, I don't know. Um, that's what I'm, I, it's, maybe it's just the way the film is handled. I don't know what it is, or if it's just the, the film trying to wrestle itself towards like mainstream Hollywood, you know, kind of, you know, kind of, kind of find that middle 
where everybody's going to go, ah, hey, hey, you know, that wasn't that crazy about those those liberals over there, you know, but we're going to get middle of the road here, you know, and uh, by the end of the film, I, I don't know, you know, but I, I, I don't know what the difference is between the people who made the film and the, and the person who wrote it, because one, I need to reread the book. So I haven't reread it maybe in 30 years. So I, but I just held on to the book mainly because it's a memento that I have of my mother, you know, so um I just lost her a couple years ago. And so now it's like anything I've got that she had, it's like, I'm, I'm not getting rid of it, you know? So, um, but maybe that's the call for me to reread the book. Um, uh, Cause I, I would really like to try to get a handle on whether the message is different in both media. So. Well, uh, I also, I, I also think it's, it's um, entirely likely that this is all a post Reagan like way of looking at this movie that at the time or it, in the moment of making it or, or that that's not how they would have interpreted that it would have just been like, Oh, it's just this one family. This is what's better for this family. Cause all these people that they've been around are crazy. Um, it could be it, that, that now we're looking at it at, at just like all of the, <laughs> uh, uh, like, I guess, if we want to get like political, the damage that Reagan has done uh, or like Reagan's legacy has done that we're looking at it now is kind of like a very unfortunate. Um, well, I mean, we're looking at it that way, but other people don't, you know? So, I mean, yeah. you and I look at it that way, but not everybody looks at it that way. No, no, no. But I'm just, I, I, but I'm saying like, I think a lot of people like certainly, I don't know enough uh, a lot about Martin Mull as a you know private citizen, but through his projects and his demeanor and the the stuff that he's in that I find really funny, I I kind of would not imagine that he's um well, or maybe I would because he's always kind of a little bit the straight man, or maybe it's like not this, but he, he I don't know. I just feel like he'd be a little bit more left-leaning than this movie. He's definitely a lot more left-leaning. I mean, a lot of his, a lot of his stuff was about marijuana and, and uh, uh, just, you know, a, a lot of his stuff was about a lot of, a lot of stuff was about the same topics that are in this film, except, you know, he was definitely uh, uh, an artist of his time, you know, where, I mean, he's, he's still acting today and he's terrific. You know, he's terrific in everything. He can always be show up and be counted on for, you know, a nice little role. We just finished watching Grace and Frankie and he shows up in the last two episodes of the series. And it was just like, oh, Martin Mull got snuck his way into this. You know, it's <laughs> like, great. He's the guy who was acting, who was missing from this entire thing. And he was terrific um, because Grace and Frankie is a lot of fun. But, uh, um, but um, yeah, no, he, he was definitely, uh, if you listen to any of his albums, uh, you'll, you'll get a feel for what exactly he was making fun of everything in society at the time. And he was definitely, you know, a Hollywood, you know, left type of person. So I don't know how he is nowadays, but, um, but at the time he was, you know, but part of his thing was, you know, you don't, you usually see him in a, you know, you'd see him in a suit and stuff, but he was always, you know, got this kind of twinkle in his eye. Like he was mocking the establishment when he was doing it, you know? Yeah. I guess, I guess I, I, I was a bit, disingenuous when i said he was playing a straight man i guess he's kind of like a a little bit of an unhinged i always think there's a little bit of uh um you're right like twinkle in his eye but i always i was gonna say well, his thing was always wearing white suits completely white suits there there was always a little bit of an um 
a, a little bit of an ins- of insanity to him <laughs> to his characters that are a little that are yeah. that they're, seem very straight laced, but they're also uh, very like tightly wound at times. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of drug humor in his stuff. So okay, I, I don't think I. Well, I I shouldn't say think. I know I have not read listened to any of his albums. I know exactly what track I'm going to send you to. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> um, I I'm finding that I don't have like a ton to talk about the about this movie that we kind of already touched on. Yeah, we've touched on a lot of the stuff. I mean, it's 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 funny. It's uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it it is, uh, like all movies are problematic today. But all movies today are problematic. Any movie is problematic in my book. So because you can always find stuff <laughs> that somebody is going to be crying their little tears over. So, um, and I'm saying that in a very cynical way. Um, but uh, um, I, I, it definitely doesn't play well some of the stuff. But other stuff plays just fine, and um, it you know people have there's a variety of takes on it when you read critics reviews about it and and uh i ascribe to some of them and i don't ascribe to others and it's just the way it is with any movie so um you know i i still enjoy it i like martin mull in it i like sally kellerman in it i think it's uh got some very funny moments in it and even with the problematic stuff i still you know, I mean, because, yeah, as we talked about with the biker stuff, you know, it's like, OK, what is problematic? But they were the heroes and they ultimately, you know, help resolve the entire film. So it's like so, you know, maybe it balances out in this in this case, you know, they got called some stuff, but then they, you know, but I, I guess ideally they wouldn't have to prove themselves. They would just be people. Right. So um, and maybe that's the problem, you know, so I wonder anyway. I know it's been a while, but I wonder how much of that is in the book because you're right that they are the heroes and it's all kind of like stuff that could be easily excised from dialogue that would that would make it less problematic, right? It's just the way a couple yeah. of people yeah. sit and talk about so that. Now you're for censorship, is that it? No, <laughs> no I don't mean that. <laughs> Slippery slope, buddy. I, I just mean that like there's nothing in the plot or the story itself that is... It is um, inherently problematic about them. It's just like some dialogue that the characters, some characters trade. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. And and that it may not have even. I mean, maybe we're now we're not supposed to hear that and think like he's wrong. And it's just that no. I, and I also I say there's nothing inherently wrong. It's just that. But then there, there is the fact that he blackmails him. That's the, that, that's the part. That's the part. Yeah, but he was using. He's using his knowledge that the guy is 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 gay against even, him. Even that doesn't seem like he's he's using it because he thinks it's wrong. It, it seems no, like he's, he's just using, using it, it to get a job. He's but he's using still it using it. To... But he's still threatening. Yeah, there's still he's there's still he's still threatening the guy's career because he's gay, and that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it, it's so close. To- it doesn't matter what what his purpose is, and the fact that he, you know, you know, it is just, so close know. to being fine, though. <laughs> I'll shut up about it. You give me, I'll you give me that job, and I'll shut up about it. That's blackmail, period. And he's using the sexuality as the as you know, he's holding the sexuality for ransom. Basically. Yeah. Oh, so, man, it's getting worse now. The more I think about it, but 
I was, <laughs> I was, I was agreeing with you this whole time because I said that I may not ever watch this movie again. And certainly the fact that I'd, I'd have to pay to rent or buy it right now, because it's not like it's not free streaming anywhere, but it's easily rentable and cheap on Prime. Um, that certainly puts a little bit of a stumbling block, but I like just listening to you describe it and talking about it. And I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind watching watch it, again. it again, though. What's that? I said, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, I mean, don't be so knee jerk, man. It doesn't mean you have to go and watch it again. You just, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just, what I was trying to say is that I, I do. Like I wouldn't mind watching this again. Like it, it is kind of pleasant. These these performances, the characters, like I said, are not always likable, yeah. but the 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 actors are all fun to see. Um, I love Bill Macy in the film, but I like Bill Macy in anything. Bill Macy so. is so good in this. That's what I was actually just thinking. And, and it is it is such a bummer what happens to him in this movie. Um, oh yeah, but it 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 is a it leads to a great public. Um, a great like public explosion by Martin Mull uh, yes. calling everybody out for their bullshit and not knowing each other not That's knowing really him yeah it's a really good scene and it's very emotionally well earned that it's just kind of like a, a like the most real human connection in the movie is between him and Sam and it's not like really verbalized until Sam is dead like at, they're at his funeral and that he's He's like, I, he was my friend. I liked him. And like all the stuff he says about him, it, it, I found it surprisingly emotional for um, how I had felt for the rest of the movie. I didn't think I was that invested in it. And I, it, it's got to all just be, or not all, but so much of it, just Bill Macy. He's so likable in this, like a, an old pervy horn dog. The other guy I really like in the film is Peter Boners. I, because I, I like, again, I like him in anything that I run into him. Oh yeah, he's he's great in it, but uh, he's the I mean he's the psychiatrist. Psychiatrist, yeah. He's yeah, great yeah. in it. Yeah, he's great in it, but he's such an asshole oh, he's too. Such an asshole, yeah. He's a com he's completely just full of shit. And uh, but you know, I mean, you know, what do you expect from Jerry from Bob Newhart? So yeah, it, well, he's he's completely full of shit, and also telling people all he's he's reinforcing everybody's worst worst instincts and there's yes. you can just see him like pivoting what he is what he is advising or believing based on what the other person wants to hear and just, yeah, just the, so he he's keeps, the worst he's the worst sort of therapist yeah um oh uh before we like really wrap it up um martha's son stokely the kid stokely. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's ridiculous he shows up at, like well he's just a little shit <laughs> like he's, he's a kid yeah. acting out um but he shows up at the end and has like a little tiny heart to heart with martin mull and i was racking my brain trying to think of had they shared anything like this early in the movie like why is stokely just suddenly coming into his bedroom while he's recuperating and having this like really um kind of important like discussion like wrapping up of the movie or 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 the the sentiments I'm not of the sure of that but i mean stokely always seems to be around though because he does in lots of 
where he's just hanging out. You know, he's he, he, he played Sally Kellerman is his mom in the film. And she's always around off and on. So, I mean, maybe that's just it. He just, he's just used to being in their life and just walking into their house or something like that, you know? So that, that might be it. They're all, cause I think they're all neighbors or something like that. Yeah, but. maybe it just, it, I couldn't yeah. remember them even having a scene or, uh, together. <laughs> it's just and this snotty little kid hanging around. Uh, what I love is the very first time you see Stokely in the movie and he's, uh, he's, he's, they've got a, he, there's a maid in the house and he's like, she, and she's got like, you know, big breasts, and he's like just kind of like littering at her and wanting to and pestering her to, to, you know, pestering her about her body and all that stuff. And he's like, he's like, he's a kid. He's like eleven or twelve or something like that. And then she, she turns around and just opens up her blouse and shows him. And he's and and she says, "Well, what are you going to do about it?" And he goes, "I don't know. I never got this far before." Yeah. And then <laughs> Sally Kellerman fires the maid because. Uh, uh, well, I mean, obviously, exposing herself Probably. to her son would be enough, but it's it's kind of like said as in, like, well, she's too much of a temptation for my son, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, well, I'm sure her son like was like, oh, you won't believe what the maid showed me, you know, and so of course you gotta let her go. Yeah, I do love what. <sighs> Who is the other um, the the replacement maid that she gets? Uh, oh. Um... Uh, oh, uh, uh, Rachel, uh, uh, the 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 black maid, right? The yeah, African maid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There we are. Ann Weldon. That, that that scene where she sits down with all of her friends. That I I love the like her character is great when she picks her up at at from the service and she's dressed in the maid's outfit and she's kind of like telling her like, oh, you don't have to wear that. I'd rather you wear uh your day clothes and she's like oh i get it you 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 want me to um be your 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 you want me your, to, uh, sassy black friend or something like that yeah, yeah well, you want me to look like your black friend who decided to just come clean your house for the day in front of all your friends and she's like oh yes would you and then they they invite her over to their discussion about all of their sex lives and uh her reactions are hilarious in that i, I oh really yeah yeah um, and they and they and they and they just assume that her husband is black. Yeah. And and, and she's talking about her orgasms and they're like because they is it true what they say about about black men? She goes, I don't know. Everything I everything I've ever she's like, I've never I've, been I've never been with anybody else but Wong or something yeah. like that. And then you realize that her husband is Asian. And they just assume that she had a black husband. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like I like that. I do like the moments like that. That kind of stuff kind of felt a little progressive, you know, in the other direction, you know, yeah. Um, there was something I just popped into my head. Oh, she shows up again later on at, uh, is it is it at Martin Mull and Tuesday Weld when they're renewing their vows? Is that right? Everybody knew. Yeah. I thought that was very yeah. weird that or not weird, but like strange that she would have shown up. But maybe it was just like, like hey, let's get everybody that's been a Well, I think she needs to show up as Martha's friend, right? Oh Martha's, well, as, as Martha's black friend. Oh, she so yeah, that, that's true. Here. Martha yeah. has to keep having her around so people don't know. Yeah. Um yeah, like like I'm saying, I I may end up I wouldn't say no to watching this again. It's not something I'm gonna really seek out. Um, 
I, I much prefer the Magic Christian in our little double bill hill here. But um, I, I would agree with that. I, I actually rate Serial higher as a film, but um, I think as an experience, Magic Christian is certainly the best way to go because it's definitely the more fun film yeah. overall. It's, it's crazier and pushes things more. Well, anyway, that's going to do it for our discussion this week with these two movies. Uh, thank you, Rick, for coming along. I, I mean, it's been a while. You People probably heard me stumbling a little bit, so I'm glad I had you here to kind of pick up the ball and run with it and uh, help me, you know, shake off some of the rust. It's been a while. And yeah. hopefully, um, I'm not going to promise to anybody that I'm going to be back to our regular schedule. We're, we're going to kind of take it as it goes. Uh, I, I want to get back into doing this more regularly. But um, right now, I just can't. I can't promise anything. But keep your keep keep subscribed, please. Um, and uh, yeah. Anyway, thank you for for being here, Rick. Uh, it was fun to talk, Hi, buddy. Always, anytime. So that's going to do it from us. Uh, I will talk to you. <laughs> uh, well, I will talk to a friend, and you will get to listen to it uh, sometime in the ne- very near future. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.